I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Since 2013, Bombus has donated over 100 million socks, underwear and t-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. Okay, the Not A Diving Podcast 2023 Pledge Drive is into its last week. It was going to be two weeks, then it was going to be three, but we're doing one more. Thank you to everyone who signed up last week. We've acquired some momentum now, so let's bring it home, shall we, with seven more days of bonus stuff when you sign up to support the pod. And uh, yeah, if you've been thinking about doing it, then you have one more week to take advantage. This is the time to do it. So check the show notes for details of the bonus stuff that you get when you sign up. But most importantly, if you sign up to the musicality tier on Patreon, which is £8.50 a month or 10 US dollars, then you receive FOC postage and packaging included the musicality 2023 t-shirts, which is an awesome t-shirt. I'm wearing one right now. So yeah, that would be a good and extremely generous thing for you to do with your time today or at any point in the next seven days so before next tuesday okay probably sick of me talking about that by now things i have been doing so for the last four episodes so i'll shut up just read those show notes today on the show on the main pod we have none other than trevor jackson now trevor has been on our list of aspirational guests since the very very start of the podcast nearly two years ago. So it's great to have him finally on. If you're not familiar with his work, then he's an extremely noted designer of record sleeves, album covers, and also a really great producer and musician, generally speaking, in his own right. So yeah, he designed a huge amount of early UK hip hop and acid house dance music sleeves and album art in the late 80s, early 90s as well as more recent stuff, which you may have noticed, including the Fortet's Looking at My Pager art and that incredible Dot Matrix Soul Wax campaign from maybe 15 years ago or so. Musically, he is, of course, Playgroup 
and previously to that, The Underdog, who remixed so many amazing artists from Massive Attack to House of Pain to The Grave Diggers to Corner Shop, Uncle, Death in Vegas, just tons and tons of great stuff. And uh, yeah, he was just an extremely prominent remixer of that era. And like I said, done brilliant stuff since too. So as I mentioned, someone we wanted to have on the show since day one. And as I also mentioned, it's great to have him finally here. So just before we get into that, we've already mentioned the Pledge Drive. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that playlist with tons of Trevor's music in this week, as well as all the episodes. Join us in the Discord. Hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord gets you into our Discord server. If you want to talk about anything on the show, there's a great bunch of people in there. We'd love to have you in there. So do that. And that's about it. So without further delay, here is Trevor Jackson. Trevor Jackson, welcome to the show. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good, mate. How are you? Yeah, not too bad, actually. Although I was just remarking to myself as I walked into the studio just now that bloody hell it's cold and it is probably winter now, isn't it? Where are you? I don't even know where you live. I'm in Spain, so it's... Oh, oh come on. It's nice and sunny there, mate, isn't it? <laughs> it's a recent occurrence that it's become a bit chilly, but it definitely is a little bit chilly. Are you in, you're in London, I take it? I am, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And I realised you're from Edgware originally. I'm from Edgware, North London. Do you know the area? I went to school in Golders Green, believe it or not. Shut up. Okay. We're North. That's um, yeah. I know that area. I, I remember when there used to be a cinema in Golders Green. So yes. that's a long, long time ago. So do I. I remember that well. Yeah. Okay. So we're definitely going to discuss that. I wanted to start <laughs> though by. Um, I want to chuck a couple of questions that I've been enjoying asking people recently because there's been some disparate responses. So the first one is, what is your definition of creativity? Oh man, really? If you have, if you have one. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Everyone hates being asked it, but I had some really interesting responses. So just, I mean, off the cuff. My definition of creativity. Yeah. Man, that's a really throwing this one at me. The first question do they get easier or harder from here? Yeah, it definitely gets easier. Uh, my definition of creativity is just kind of um, imaginative freedom. Okay. That's nice and pithy. Yeah. Okay, let me ask you a follow-up question, which might yeah. sh- sharpen that up a bit. Do you think... I thought that was pretty sharp, mate. I mean, it was pretty vague. <laughs> okay. But creativity is very vague. It's kind of like, you know... Right. Go on, yeah. go on. Well, the follow-up was going to be, do you think that... When people talk about creativity, and particularly in the economy and like in the workplace, do you think that really bears any relevance to how you view creativity? I don't even know what you mean by creativity in the workplace. Yeah, okay, so that that hasn't hasn't sharpened it up at all. What I meant was, I I think. So let let me let me give you my hypothesis. Yeah, go on. I think that create like the, the kind of very woolly term creativity is a sort of almost a point of fetish amongst people. And people love to think that they're creative and that they work in creative roles and they and they describe things as being creative almost without a definition as a way of ascribing value to them. Yeah. And uh I I, I um I absolutely appreciate your initial response to this because I don't really have a great like definition of, of creativity either. But I have a hunch that it's something which is fetishized in a very kind of commodified kind of a way well it's become a lifestyle choice it's become a lifestyle term right 
but that's not, I mean, that's not answering your original, answering your original question. What is creative? What, what do I think of what is creativity? But I understand what you're saying in terms it's been picked up by, um, by industries as a, as a term. Um, uh, it's not something that really I really think about, if I'm honest with you. Okay. Sorry. So yeah, it, it's not something that it's not something I really. I mean, that that the, the whole commodity. You know, the, the that's not a word, is it? Commodity. I don't know what word I'm trying to say. The um, commodification. I, I don't know. Yeah. The thing is, like, I'm a very fortunate person in that I earn a living from what I love, and I've always done that. Right. So in terms of my own creative path it's literally been a, a situation for me where since very young I've just got paid well not the beginning I didn't get paid I did it for free but for a long time I've been paid just to come up with ideas right but the ideas I have are, are, are formed and based in life life experiences around and within specific cultures that have made me the person I am and the work, every single piece of work I, I do is genuinely a pro, a, 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 the result of a process of that experience. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So for me, creativity in my life, it is my life. So it's not a, not, not a, a, a term I put upon myself. It, it's, it's just my life. I, I live and breathe. That's what it's I just the nature of what you do, I guess, is what you're saying. But the process of it is really, you know, I, I have a, you know, it's, it's, in this day and age, the, uh, the concept of kind of uh, authenticity is, you know, it's a difficult thing to discuss, potentially. Well, authenticity is another one, I think, which almost falls under the same category when people talk about it. But, um, yeah, so I'm just saying in terms of me thinking about other, you know, it's very easy for me to be cynical. I mean, for me personally, it is, I spend a lot of time being cynical, but when it comes to the creative, in inverted commas, industry, like I say, I, I believe it, it's become, a, you know, so many of the industries and the things that I've been involved in since I was very young have become lifestyle choices now. And for me, I never did anything because I thought it was cool or it looked cool or um, someone would look up to me or someone would fancy me or someone would find me more attractive or I, I'd earn more money. It was just a path I took because it was something I've always been incredibly passionate about. And that's what I get pleasure from. Do you know what I mean? So asking me to define, it's like asking me to define what my life is about. And that's kind of quite hard to do. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. That's an interesting way of putting it actually. And um, yeah, I think particularly with, with that sort of culture that you're talking about, because yeah, I mean, I, I, I totally hear what you're saying. And I, I, I agree, I think uh, with regards to, you know, defining it as a, as a kind of lifestyle thing. Now that, that definitely rings a bell with me, but, but also I suppose the, the kind of, I guess the pushback to that would be that popular culture of the kind that you have been associated with for the last few decades mm -hmm. is very much a well it's it's stuff which is which is cool isn't it it's perceived to be cool um that doesn't necessarily mean that the motivations of the people involved in it revolve around that element of it but it certainly is like music generally speaking is is a cool thing to do isn't it yeah but I'm a lot of the things that I originally had an interest in and, and what inspired me in the first place were things that weren't deemed as cool. I grew up reading comic books, playing video games and listening to weird music, and I still listen to weird music. And that wasn't cool when I was younger. You know, I was seen as being a bit of a geek or a bit of a nerd. I mean, yeah, it might be cool now, but I grew up 
most of my life, at that early period of my life, seeming like an outcast, seeming like someone that, you know, growing up where I grew up, you know, I wasn't one of those kids that um, aspired. I didn't play football. I didn't drive around in a convertible convertible BMW or kind of like... You weren't a a Beck, which is a term that you used, which is something you used in an interview, which I hadn't heard for at least two decades. It was just amazing. (laughs) But that's, yeah, I mean... But that, that's, it, it is perceived as cool. I mean, I, I don't give a fuck what's cool now, to be honest with you. But, but I, I, I get your point of saying, yeah, in theory. I mean, this is the whole thing, my, my life now. But the thing is, but, but the path my life has taken was not some really um, highly conceptual path. Sure. It's, it was just a natural, completely organic process for me based upon doing things that I loved. Right. Absolutely, yeah. And that's, you know, good luck. I, I don't have an issue with people that, you know, as long as, as long as people are doing what they generally love and their intentions are good, that's all that matters to me about people in, in, any, in any industry doing anything, you know. That's what matters. I mean, people don't always have the, have the luxury of doing that, but we're talking about particularly in the creative industries. That, that's, that's all that matters to me, really. But, yeah, you're right. These things are perceived as being cool but it doesn't matter to me really it's interesting what you say though because i think that a lot of the stuff which has become cool over time and the cultures which have become cool were originally countercultures yeah right and i think that's what you're exactly. that's what you're describing when you're talking about yeah. countercultures yeah you know, I, I just think about it's a bigger conversation but i think about most of the things that i grew up loving were counterculture subculture and and in the, in that in the places they were in I think that they personally, I think maybe some of them should have stayed there. Right. I think that, no, I think about when I was a kid watching bootleg VHS as a vice bit on my grave and Evil Dead and, and really gnarly, disgusting horror films and early porn or whatever. It was really naughty seeing those things, right? But I knew they were kind of wrong. But now we live in a society which is full of sex and violence and it's kind of deemed as being acceptable. It's deemed as being mainstream and that, being a father, being a fairly new father, that actually, well, not even before I was a dad, I just thought to myself, it's kind of wrong. Mm. You know, that's a, another conversation. But I think, yeah, some subcultures and countercultures deserve to be, well, not deserve, they, I prefer, you know, and it's also that kind of thing when someone discovers what you're into, it's kind yeah. of pisses you off a little bit. Do you know what I mean? But the, but the world has changed a lot now. Yeah, I mean, I, always, I often wonder whether, well, I mean, does counterculture even exist really these days, or is everything just the same like, part of this kind of amorphous? Oh, I know. I think that I think there is. You just got to dig deep. You know, I think about what I, you know. I'd like to think, you know, for my NTS show particularly. You know, I, I spend a lot of time trying to find music that, you know, I love it when I find something that I, I find something that only a few people have heard. And you know, there's, there's definitely things out there that are kind of um, you know buck the trend. And um, I, I think there are. I think the thing is now where they used to be just a, a, a smaller number. Now there's multiple versions of subcultures out there. Yeah, they get picked up easier, but I definitely think counterculture, counterculture, and subcultures there. I do. I, I strongly believe that. That's what keeps me going. Really. Well, okay. So let me ask you a question about that. What does um, what constitutes a culture as opposed to you know music being made, which is a bit different and doesn't have a big audience? Does that in of itself consist of? A, does that make it a counterculture, or is, does it there need to be more than that for you to use that term? Well, to me, culture isn't just music. Culture, a culture, is things that are intrinsically intertwined. Because I, I think culture is is an intrinsic, different threads. It, it's 
music, art, fashion, film, literature. You know, that's what a culture culture is, is a movement based on loads of different interconnected creative things, you know? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was kind of my, that was my question, really, because, I mean, yes, there is loads of, I mean, using the example of music, because that's what you were talking about from your, for your show. Yeah. But when you, as you said, identify something which you consider to be countercultural, yeah. are there those things present too? I think, um, well, I don't, I don't always know, because just from hearing a bit of music, I can't tell, but I do know that I think we're at a situation where, you know, I don't travel and DJ as much as I used to. Whereas when I first started playing, I'd go to different cities. I've discussed this before. But I mean, I think um, when I used to travel pre, probably pre-internet, right, you could, different area, different cities had a specific different feel to them, right? There were movements going on within those cities which felt quite unique to those cities, I think. Whereas since... The, the sounds such an old man thing to say since the internet, but I think that things have become far more diluted and people look, I just, I thought that, I think that people start just looking the same, you know, you go to different cities and you can't tell that that person's from Milan or that person's from New York or that because everyone kind of looks the same of a certain kind of age, yep. you know, and, and that's, and that's a pity, but there is undoubtedly, I, be, I strongly believe there are countercultures and subcultures still going on smaller scenes, but I'm just not particularly aware of them. You know, I hear musically, yeah, you can hear things start coming together. I'll hear something and go, wow, well, you know, this is, I haven't quite heard something like this before and look into it a bit deeper. And it's something that I didn't quite kind of know what was going on. So I have faith in there being people that are doing alternative things still without a doubt, whether there is as larger reaching. I don't know, but that doesn't matter. I, I'm kind of a strong believer in people creating their own scenes and not having to feel they have to be from a big city. And um, it really excites me what's going on in other places, you know? Sounds like a dumb answer, but no. It, I'm, yeah, generally, I think there are, you know, I might not know. But in fact, I don't, I don't probably at my age, I, sh- I, I shouldn't even know about them. Yeah, you know? right. Maybe yeah. I don't deserve to know about them, really. But I, 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 you know, I believe it's happening, definitely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. And... I think, yeah, I think there's something, there's, some, there's value in mystery to those things. Absolutely. And I think, you know, to, to your point about the internet, one of the, I mean, obviously there's lots of positive things that have happened from the internet and from the kind of cross-polarization of cultures, which it's enabled. But yeah. one of the things that has definitely been lost or, you know, there is a danger um, of it being lost is that kind of sense of mystery to things where, you know, there is, uh, things are able to sort of develop out of the spotlight and then, and then emerge or don't emerge actually, but you know, if they're ready and if they're, you know, if it's going to happen, then they're able to emerge sort of fully formed in a way, which yeah, is more difficult and, now. No, definitely. And I think the other thing is that I think what was lost for a long while was individuality. And I think up to recently, there was a situation maybe where, um, people felt a bit lost that they needed to feel like they, they wanted to be part of something and being part of something meant, listen to a particular kind of music dressing in a certain way and there was actually a strength and a, and, a, and a security and feeling like you're part of something but more recently i've definitely seen a return to individuality and i see people around i'm like wow i don't know you know you i could look at someone and think i know what they're you, know, you look at someone and say i know what kind of music they're into but i know their favorite you know you could tell but now over the past few years i've definitely seen a rise 
in people being braver and people being more individual, especially musically as well. I think since people realised, you know, it, it's not so easy just to make formulate music and and um, have a hit record and sell that. Now people are, I don't give a fuck anymore. I just make what I want, and that's really exciting to me that more and more people just seem to be putting their necks out just to make music, which isn't part of anything. It's just their own kind of self-expression. And I think there's definitely a return to that in in music and fashion and youth culture that I think is exciting. You know? That's really interesting. That's an optimistic view, which I have not heard put forward that much really? before. Not really, no. I mean, I, I, I hear what you're saying. I, can, I, I think I can identify what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, as you were saying it, I, I, I mean, my, my immediate counter question or like pushback would be that um, I feel like I can look at someone now and identify exactly what their political views are, like down to the finest point. Yeah. <laughs> Which is not necessarily, you know, this doesn't necessarily invalidate what you just said at all. But no, no, I, no, but uh, without a doubt, there, but you know, there are particular, you know, there, there, is, there are uh, tribes that have been around for a long time. It used to be far less tribes. You'd have teddy boys, skinheads, mm. mods, you know, uh, and then, you know, hip hop, rave. But I think now there's so many different kind of things going on. And I, I do, I do feel optimistic about, you know, it's probably driven by music because I think there's more amazing, interesting new music now than there's ever been. And that excites me. And I think that, um, as I say, I, I like, I like being surprised. I like seeing strange people around. I like seeing people that, don't feel like they need to be part of something. They just have the strength and individuality just to do their own thing. That's that's probably what's always excited me most. You know, people that do their own thing in in everything. You know? Yeah, no, it's interesting to hear you, you to hear you say that about music as well, and the degree to which there is good stuff being made. I mean, I suppose that you know there is more being made, and that would necessarily, well, it might necessarily then result in you know, more a rising tide lifting or boats as it were we had uh, nicks on the show last week actually when we talked a lot about music discovery and the challenges around it um so i mean it sounds like for your for your radio show you do a lot of digging by the sound of things yeah but that's fun and the thing is it's like how do you do it though where do you where do you look in practical terms because obviously it's different to go and everywhere you know, heading to the shops every week i mean the Going back slightly, yeah, there's undoubtedly so much more music, which makes it harder to find good music. But what's great about that is, whereas maybe 10 years ago, everybody would be playing the same records DJ-wise, if you're playing the same records as someone else now, you're a shit DJ. Right. Because there is no excuse to be playing the same records everyone else is playing. There are so many phenomenally great records out there. You know, I'm of that ilk. When I used to get a promo, I'd say, as played by Pete Tong, as played by Richie Orton, I'd be like, okay, I'm not fucking playing that then. Right. I don't want to play a record that someone else is playing. I want to be playing records that no one else has heard before. That, to me, is what's exciting. And I find my music just everywhere. I still go to traditional record shops. I look on, you know, I use social media, my friends, and see what people are posting up. Bandcamp a lot, Boomcat, Juno. You know, I, I search. I spend a long time looking for new music. Mm. You know, I, I, I get sent, and the, the truth is now I, I get sent a lot of stuff, but I probably don't listen to most of the promos I get sent anymore. I'd rather just go, it sounds like a bit of a righteous thing to say, but I'd much rather buy music. I really take great pleasure in buying music. I, you know, it might just be £1.50 on Bandcamp, but I'll buy it just because I'm saying thank you for your record. Thanks for making this. This is, my, this is my way of saying thank you. Yeah, the whole promo thing is a bit of a carousel, isn't it? And it does feel like you're on a conveyor belt going through them. It's 
I understand why people go through that process. But as I said, I'm not that person. Like it puts me off if I'm get, if I know I'm getting sent something that another 500 people are getting sent. I don't want it. Yeah, <laughs> stupid. But it's just my position in what I do as a, a, now is just a just a it's radio, but just as a radio DJ trying to discover new music. It doesn't. It, there's no point me playing a new big release by someone because someone else is going to play it anyway. Mm. You know. Yeah, absolutely. And that's important to me. So do you generally, on, on the show, do you play vast majority new stuff? My show is 99% new music. Yep. Yeah, I mean, it used to be a fortnightly show. Now, for various reasons, it's a monthly show. But yeah, it's only it's all new music. Yeah. I mean, you know, I only have two hours. I can play maybe max. I can fit 50 tracks, and I normally buy 150 tracks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I recently started doing a monthly show, actually, for the first time in years and years. And so I have been yeah. in the last, oh, I'm doing in the process of putting the third one together at the moment. And a m- monthly is just a really nice amount of time because you can spend that much time and you can like, amass a pretty enormous arsenal of things to uh, choose from. I would rather be doing a weekly. If I had the time, I'd do a weekly because I just think there's so much music out there that I feel bad that I can't play a lot of the music that I buy that I find. Mm. So that's a str- it's, there's so much music at the moment. It's crazy. That I've, that's, yeah, I think a month is quite hard because that means... You know, I, I don't actually, I, I put aside a few days a month to search for stuff, right? So it's not like I'm not doing it every week. I don't have time. And so the amount of, I mean, I don't know if I listen to 3,000 tracks or something. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, that means hard choices. Absolutely. And that's what makes it difficult, right? Yeah. And, and also it means that a lot of it, uh, things have to kind of be immediate to me. I don't have to, which is sad. So a lot of things I probably miss out on because they don't grab me, but I'd like to think, I'm old enough and my ears are well-tuned enough now that I can pretty much tell if something's good in, in a few seconds. Mm. Sounds a bit weird, but it's true, actually. I can normally tell whether it's, something's my cup of tea or not. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like 15 seconds max, usually less, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. yeah. Feels a bit ruthless, but it is what it is. I mean, it's, I think it's unavoidable, to be honest. But, but you know, like, like you say, this is a skill which has developed over time. You know, it really is owned, I think honed as it were well like, yeah i have i have a specific remit like i say i'm not i don't really do playing clubs anymore so my remit is purely to play music that i love i don't have to make people making people dance is like i don't have to do that anymore mm. um so it's much it's kind of easier you know so let me ask you another um theoretical question go on um in terms of the uh um, the, the broader kind of creativity thing. You're obviously someone who's expressed themselves in music as much as visual art. Is there any discernible difference in a, in a kind of broad sense between the two kind of disciplines for you? No, not um, not re- no. It's just it, you know I'm sitting here now with a list of 14 different projects I'm working on some of them musical, some of them visual, and I approach them all the same way. I get different pleasure from them. I get, I, 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 I get different pleasure from them. Making music is, um, yeah, making music is definitely more more fluid maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And and visual, my visual work, because a lot of it is commission-based, is more like solving problems, which I really enjoy doing. So making music isn't really solving. A, well, no, some of my music, definitely some of the previous music I made was definitely almost like problem solving. I had a concept from the beginning, so I had something to aim towards, which is quite similar actually to doing a visual project, commercial project for someone. 
but now I, you know, I'm doing more personal visual projects and most of the music I'm making now is just quite expressive. So they're very, very similar, those things. So I suppose it's, I, I divide, yeah, I suppose my commercial work is very different from my personal work, but within the commercial work, the approach is the same and within the, my personal work, the approach is the same, yeah. So the disciplines are very similar. Yeah, I was, yeah, expecting you to give that kind of answer. So what kind of music stuff are you doing at the moment? Well, I kind of, a few years ago, you know, I, I, I haven't released so much music for a long time. And then a few years ago, I I had like something like 500 tracks that I went through and I finished my whole arc. So, yeah, I released all the old music I had a number of years ago. I started a, a new label called uh, Pre, Pre-Recordings. And that was all my old music I finished. And then... Literally, I didn't have one demo or anything left. Really, wow. I cleaned the slate. <laughs> That's an amazing position to be it took in. Me, it took me a long time. I released, I don't know, I released five or six albums or something, of, of, of all different stuff, hip-hop stuff, techno stuff, weird stuff, loads of stuff. And then and then I, I bought myself a Polyam tracker because I'd always worked with um, Logic and I was really bored with working on Logic. I, I basically used to use Logic as a recorder and a mixture of soft synths and, and hardware to make music, but it was always quite linear in the way I made it. Um, and I got, yeah, I got a Polyan tracker and I just started playing with that and literally making music. I've always had a fantastic sound library I've built up over years of my, I'm not much of a library buyer. I haven't really bought that many things from sound libraries. And so it's my own personal library. And I just was making music in bed and just on the sofa. And it's just, and because it's a, we're using a tracker, it's such a different way of making music. Right, yeah. It's just liberating. So I've just made loads of music with this tracker. But now I'm in a situation I've got like 300 tracks sitting there, but now I've got to <laughs> finish. But the process is, and it's like, for me, it's the best music I've ever made, I think. And I love, I, I'm just really happy making music that way, you know, away from just staring at a big screen, away from being in a studio studio. I just have been quite, um, yeah, I've been uh, freed up quite a lot doing that. And, and when that music's going to come out, I don't know. But um, I've, I've been enjoying making music because also it's very, I've been making music super quickly. I used to spend ages, remixes would take me two months or making tracks would take me a long time. But this is stuff I, I make a track in in an hour and it just sounds fucking great. I'm like, wow. And it's just it's liberating. So yeah, that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. But how I put it out, not sure yet. And I'm probably not going to put it under my own name either. I'm going to probably do it under a pseudonym, I think. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds sounds great. I mean, that's something actually that we've talked about quite a bit on the show recently is um I guess like musical workflow and establishing mm. ways of doing it that are like productive but fun as well and stuff which kind of yields different things that you get when you're sitting at a screen. I mean, I've kind of reflected that um I've done a lot of experimentation with different working but actually it comes to an annoying conclusion that actually my best music is made when i'm sat at a bloody computer <laughs> like looking at a massive yeah screen. no it, 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 it just like for me the thing is because my day-to-day work life is sat in front of a screen doing design and creative work and doing email you know the computer is something which i do also i'm paying bills and i'm getting it, it, it's something which doesn't isn't just a purely positive experience the screen yeah i don't yeah i don't enjoy looking at a screen really and i struggle now so i'm this is what i mean i know the music i've been making on this tracker i i'm really bad at reading instruction manuals so i 
I kind of taught myself to use it without reading instruction manual. I'm doing everything wrong. And there was a couple of things I wasn't sure about. I emailed Polly and they're like, you haven't read the manual, have you? <laughs> and I'm like, I haven't. And, and then they were like, well, maybe you should read it. And I just don't want to because I started to look at it and it changed the way I was approaching it. Mm, yep. And, you know, for me, the, the, the most exciting, you know, with lots of things, especially now, I love things that sound naive. It's so hard to find things that sound naive now or look naive because everyone's so well-versed in technology, right? And everyone, a lot of people, they strive for things that look beautiful and perfect and sound perfect. And I'm not necessarily a, fan, necessarily, necessarily a big fan of that process or that, that result. So That is, can I, know, I, let I, me just interrupt you there, because that's actually something that I picked out. I looked at a bunch of your interviews to prepare for this, and that's something that you say a lot, actually, like that you really like early demos of, of bands and of, of acts. And yeah. um, I think the term that you used was like, it's the kind of, yeah, I think, not, yeah, a naive expression of what that artist is about that you, that, often is then lost somehow. Yeah. That's a super interesting thing. And it's, I think, a, I think it's an experience that loads of musicians have. Like having this kind of experience of a kind of early breakthrough in music, which yields this really exciting thing, but is not perfectly expressed. And then you then spend the next X amount of years trying to ex- perfectly express this idea, but then the <laughs> idea is lost along the way, right? You can't, yeah, because I think most people start making music by trying to emulate something else, and then that turns into their own voice, or they just they just express themselves without trying to copy something else. And I think those initial, normally those initial steps into doing anything quite childlike, and the naivety of that. There's something quite beautiful that's really, really almost impossible to return to, unless, like I'm saying, for me using a bit of new equipment that I didn't know how to use totally got me back into that headspace. And I literally felt like, shit, this is like the first time I remember when I had an S950 sample and I started using that. And I got really skilled in you. Again, I didn't really read the manual, but I did things with it. And I was really excited. Lit- honestly, using the tracker for me, I was like, wow. I feel like I've started making music all over again. And it felt amazing. And it sounds, I won't say amazing, because... But it sounds, it feels good to me, you know? And that, it definitely, I think that's a really important thing. Because maybe those, those when you're not trying so hard, I mean, it's a, it's a cliche, but it's true. Those tracks that you do in like half an hour are your best always, tracks, Always, you know? always, yeah. Always. always. So when you labour over things, you can hear it, you know? When people, it, you, you can just tell. I mean, I, you know, I, I'm a huge fan of, trust me, I'm a huge fan of like, you know, I grew up listening to Trevor Horn Productions and, hearing really beautiful, very, very expensive tracks that took months to make. And I do adore that kind of stuff. But at the same time, maybe also the, 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 the honest truth is that I've, I, most of the music I make myself, I program, I do everything myself. I, I, I rarely get people to mix tracks for me. I do everything myself and I can't make something. I don't have the equipment. I don't have an SSL desk. I can't make something that sounds like a Trevor Horn production, you know? So I go the opposite way. I'm like, I'd rather it make it sound a bit fucked because... I don't, want to be, I don't want to be halfway in between and make something which sounds, it's trying too hard to sound great and it doesn't sound great. So sometimes I like, you know, a lot of the music, the music I made, specifically that old stuff that was demos that I finished, I didn't have stereo tracks. I just, I'm sorry, I didn't have stems. I just had stereo tracks and I edited them, recorded it to a tape machine and it just sounded great, 
You know, the, it's all about feel. At the end of the day, it's about feel to me. You know, we could we could intellectualize and and talk about gear and stuff like that, but at the end of the day, it, 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 again, it's a cliche. It doesn't matter what you got; it's what you do with it, right? Yeah, I mean, I think even those sort of beautiful sounding Trevor Horn productions were um, maybe well, because I, I think ultimately the sound of a great record is is just great performances. I mean, that kind of record anyway. They're just great performances captured really well. So um, to, 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 let, let, me, let, me, let me finish that yeah. by saying that, you know, Trevor and Trevor Horn, that is, and an engineer yeah. setting something up you know, to, to capture a, a, a performance or, or a vibe which a performer is giving off in a way yeah. is almost like they're just they're stepping back at that point. Yeah. Well, the, but the interesting thing is, that most of the records I love by Trevor Horn, like bit Frankie, Relax, Art of Noise, Slave to the Rhythm, when you hear about how those tracks were made, it was actually the amazingly happy accident that formed the basis of all those great tracks. Like Relax, they tried to make it a hundred times. They laboured a bit so hard. Yeah, yeah, I've read those stories. Actually. And then Trevor, That's amazing, isn't it? You know, yeah, and Trevor went, in, went home and then Gary Langan and Jay just, just fucked around for and they made the groove. And the, he, Trevor Horn went back to the studio and said, what is this? And they just did it. Art Annoy's beatbox accident, just sampling, you know, the guy from Yes's drums and, and Slave to the Rhythm even. I think they had, you know, Trouble Funk played a whole session and JJ just took like a two and a half second loop from it and that became the basis for the track after they'd laboured over it for months. So yes, but yes, but no, you know. Yeah, there's yeah, an, yeah. I think it's not just down to performance. It's down to kind of the um, spontaneity you know, and hearing the life in something. Because you can hear when something's been like a lot of contemporary pop music. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, that's sort of what I meant, I think. If I can yeah. try and wreck on what I no, I'm not disagreeing with you. No, I agree. I, I'm just enhancing what you said. But that's it. I think a lot of contemporary pop music sounds like it's had, it's been mixed to death. Yes. Or produced to death, right? And it just, it, it's not the sonics. You can 20 just, people wrote the song as well. It doesn't help. Yeah, it's just something that sounds, and I don't have a problem with, you know, I'm a big, um, start Aiken Waterman fan. I don't have a problem with manufactured pop music, right? Yeah. But it's, it's that magic element of making something sound alive. Yeah. You know, and that's that's what everyone strives for, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. And I, um, yeah, I absolutely share your well, well, what sounds like frustration with modern pop music. I think a lot of it is, yeah, it just sounds quite soulless to me. Yeah, but it's funny. But I heard that Dua Lipa tune, the new one. I've never been a fan of her music. I saw that's you tweet about that. Yeah. That's a fucking great record. She is uh, a great performer and someone who's who really comes through well on, on record too. No, I just think the production. I mean, yeah, it's, it's what's the name from Tame Impala, and, so, and I just heard that, and I was like, "That's a great pop record." Yeah, you know, maybe that's been mixed to death a billion times, but it sounded alive to me. Mm. Something about it was good. Oh yeah, I mean, it does exist for sure. Uh, and like anything now, I think like there are because there is so there's just such a volume of stuff. So 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 much stuff is that will almost inevitably be good examples of something. But um, the way the technology has gone has kind of incentivized things to be done in a certain kind of a way. I don't know enough about pop. I don't know enough about um, pop. I, I've disconnected. I have no idea what's in the charts. I don't know what sells. I have no idea. Like I said. I think I had six music on or something and Dua Lita popped up mm-hmm. or I saw it on TV. I thought that's a great record. Yeah. So I can't really comment on that because I don't, I don't know. I'm, I, yeah, I, I don't know enough about contemporary pop music to, to know. I have no idea. Fair enough. So tell me about, sorry, <laughs> that's right. It's fine. There's no particular reason why you should do, to be honest. Um, tell me about growing up in 
North London. You're a child of the 80s, basically, right? I think you're roughly 10 years older than me, so that would kind of make sense. Yeah, a child of the 80s. So I, I grew up in, in Edgware. I, I went to local comprehensive school, uh, kind of fairly middle-class background, um, and worked in a record shop from the age of like 14. I was like a... a, a, a so that's worth, I mean, that's worth asking about. How does one age 14 find themselves working in a record shop? I think my mum was trying to go around and get me a job working somewhere. I worked in a, 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 a mitzvah shop selling suits when I was about 13, I think. Maybe not for, I think maybe for a couple of, I think I started working in the rock shop maybe when I was 15. Um, I was just helping out on a Saturday. So I wasn't behind the counter. I think I was just helping do banal shit in the shop. And then I worked there for years and I ended up being like the manager on a Sunday. And this was quite a, a fairly, a shop called Loppy Lugs. It was on the corner of, uh, Station Road in Edgware. And it was quite interesting because we had a really, really great clientele there. Yeah, what was being sold mostly? I know we're talking, this was, it was pop music, but the guy who ran the shop was like a corrupt South African guy. And he he had some kind of deal with, he, he'd like, they'd have limited edition picture discs. So that's probably my fascination with limited edition formats, but he'd get in, you know, a shop would, was only supposed to be able to get two copies of a, a Madonna picture disc and he'd have like 300. Right. And it, 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 I think he'd pay backhand. I think, you know, he used to have record reps come around and I think he used to give them backhanders. So he'd, he'd get them out and he'd sell them abroad. He'd export them to, to places. So he was, yeah. And then, uh, yeah. And he was, yeah. So he was a pretty bad character. Um, he used to like, um, again, I've told the story before, but he used to say if an old person came in, just stick another three quid on the price. <laughs> Literally. Nice. And, um, but we had amazing uh, Trevor Horn used to come in with his wife, Jill Sinclair. Okay. They didn't, and then George Michael came in. Tons of people used to come in. It was like one of the biggest record shops. What well, a big shop, but a really important record shop in that area. And and also because my, my boss was a crook, we used to steal records from there and nick record tokens. And I'd go up to West End and buy import records, import hip-hop records from Groove Records with record tokens that I nicked from the shop. So I've got, basically got thousands of records from... Nick from the record shop because the boss was such a crook. And then Richard Russell, XL Record, he came to work at the shop as well. He lived around the corner and he worked with me on a Sunday. And yeah, it was a great time, really. So yeah, there were good times. And then I started going out clubbing when I was about 14, or 15 maybe. So I was going out on a Saturday night, getting in at like four and having to go to open up the shop at like nine, 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. This is when you were sort of 15, 16 sort of thing? Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, in fact, you just said that you were younger than that, didn't you? Sorry. Um, no, no, I was about yeah, I was about fifteen, six, about sixteen or something, going to first clubs and stuff. So you mentioned hip hop there, which is something which uh, is obviously a bit a kind of important thing for you musically. Yeah. What was the what was the kind of entry point to the UK market, as it were, for that genre of music? Like, what was the um, what was the kind of environment that it was coming into, and did it? Resonate with people? I mean, obviously it resonated with you, but like, what was the, what do people make of it? Well, for, for me, for, for me, I took a different path because for me, like the first clubs I went to were like new romantic kind of new wave clubs, right? I, you know, I used to go to, I go to Candon Palace and hear Eddie Richards and Colin Favor play. And they were playing a lot of kind of, you know, new order, but mix it with electro and, and weird stuff. So I was in the tallow and stuff like that. So I was really into... My, my, my favorite bands growing up were like Soft Cell, Human League, Heaven Seventeen, 
craft work. And so I was really into electro, like, sorry, UK electro pop or European electro pop. And then when electro, electro came out, it wasn't a shock to my system. It was like, shit, this is what I was hearing. And it was like a complete, uh, it, it was a smooth transition in from listening to Yazoo and Depeche Mode into listening to Arthur Baker, John Roby, looking for the perfect beat. Because they were all kind of, you know, maybe with the same machines, right? And that's so electro really was, for a lot of kids, people of my age, electro was the entry point because you had the Morgan Khan Street Sounds electro compilations, which would, you know, all right, I could nick record tokens and go to the West End, but most people, you couldn't afford to buy 10, 12, because they were all like five quid back then, which was a lot of money. So if you could buy a compilation for $1.99 that had all of them on it, that was a game changer. So really the electro compilations, Tim Westwood on LWR and Mike Allen on Capital, I think he was on, they were the entry points for hip hop for me and a lot of people through electro, which then turned into hip hop. Right. Yeah. Okay. So um, there's this kind of seeming cross, like, well, I, I was definitely far too young to be involved in this or even know about it at all directly. But yeah. I mean, we had Adrian Sherwood on a show a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And in sort of prepping for that and also for this, there seems to have been this kind of, and also just in relation to what you just said, this kind of um, kind of crossover scene or kind of melting pot of different influences involving that, yeah, that sort of post-punk slash electro-pop type stuff, uh, EBM and and sort of nascent industrial stuff, and then hip-hop as well being a really key uh, sort of import into that. Totally. Yeah, okay. So how did that, how was that expressed in the scene in London? It's really easy to understand in terms of like a lot of people's entry point for UK hip hop was breaking graffiti, but going through more traditional methods, which was meeting at Covent Garden, listening to Tim Westwood, going to this club spats that he did, which was like a Saturday afternoon club that young people could get into. And that was kind of the, that, that, that's the path that everybody hears about, right? So you listen to, you talk about hip-hop, UK hip-hop pioneers. That's where a lot of them came from. Got it. And then also through the Wild Bunch, the whole Bristol thing, the Dugout Club, Smith & Mighty, there was that scene going on. There were scenes all over the country. But for me personally, I was introduced by going to what we'd call trendy clubs, right? So I was going to fashion-y kind of London nightlife, where you heard everything. So there, so for me, like I said, I'd heard Colin Favor and Eddie Richards, and they would play an Adrian Sherwood production next to an Electro record, next to a, a New Order record. They were records, they were club records that were getting played. All those things were getting played at the same time. Like there, was a guy, there was a club called The Embassy, a guy called DJ Wolf, who was a big influence to me, at this club called Astral Flight. And he was playing more gothy stuff. So he had played like gothy and industrial. He had played Ministry and Alien Sex Fiend but play a hip run DMC at the same time. And that, that was the same in a lot of those downtown New York clubs. It's the same thing. Mm. So that was art, music, fashion together. It was that kind of scene. And that's where I came through. And those records were, they were connected because a lot of those producers were um, like Adrian. You know, I, I listened to your Adrian interview, you know, and Adrian was a massive influence to me. And the first record I heard involved in was a DJ was a record called with Fats Comet record called DJ Dream, mm. which was made with DJ Cheese and a guy called Duke Booty who made really great electro records, word of mouth, and was involved in the message and a lot of the Sugar Hill stuff. And obviously, the Tackhead band were all the Sugar were, were the Sugar Hill gangs backing band. It was all interconnected, 
that's what I'm saying. So for me to go from electro or electro pop into electro, it just didn't, it didn't feel like, wow, there's a new genre popping up all the time. It just felt like one kind of big melting pot or stuff. Yeah. Okay. That's, that, that was what I was getting at. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that's happened in the subsequent, I guess, 30 years is that things have become more and more specialized, I suppose, musically. And in a way that means what you're describing is, I think, quite difficult to imagine now, probably for quite a lot of people who are. You know, Not really. I, I know. I mean, I don't know. I think there's definitely a sense of eclecticism's come back. Okay. I think. You know, I grew up with definitely all the DJs that I admired, those guys, you know, Colin and Eddie, DJ Wolf, Cold Cut. A lot of the people I was really inspired by, they were people that were playing all kinds of music, you know. And that's, and it, but it wasn't weird to me to hear an African record next to a house record next to a hip-hop record. That was exciting. Mm. You know, as time gone, you know, so later down the line, you know, things like Progressive House came up. I remember standing in clubs thinking this is the most boring music I've ever fucking heard. <laughs> I'm listening to records that sound the fucking same all night. I grew, you know, I didn't want to hear that. I grew up hearing people play a real mix of, you know, literally like double students, double D and Steinsky, lesson one. That is like the soundtrack to clubs I went to. You know, you heard all these things together. And that was really exciting. And it wasn't really until, to be honest with you, later down the line, like James Lavelle and Moax, where that kind of that thing started again, that eclecticism. Sure, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it's funny because um, Colin Favor was actually one of the first DJs that I got into, but it was later, and he was playing techno on Kiss. It was released yeah. on Kiss. Yeah. And you know, I'm I'm, tr- I'm trying to piece together what you're saying in, in relation to my early clubbing experiences, which were sort of ninety four, ninety five ish sort of time. Yeah. And things were definitely much more specialised by then. Um, Hundred percent, totally changed. Yeah. Totally. Would you put that down if you, to? If you, Sorry, what were you going to say? Because well, no, if you listen to his, I've got tapes, Colin's Kiss tapes from far earlier. Yep. Ment- mental mix of stuff, mm. you know. Uh, uh, why did it change? Um, probably because it became an industry, you know. The, the clubs I'm talking about, you know, when I was in the, in the 80s, when I was going to these clubs, there was probably a core of maybe a thousand people maximum in the whole of London that were going out at night to these clubs, right? It wasn't a massive thing. And things, I think it changed a lot with Acid House. Yeah. I was going to suggest that maybe ecstasy played a role in this. No, no, it wasn't the drug. It wasn't the drugs. It was, it it wasn't the drugs. It was the people making money behind it. Right. It was literally, there was an amazing underground scene coming on. And this, this club, the trip happened at the Astoria where, you know, there's famous footage of it. And I went to that club and it was shit. <laughs> it was just, it was, it, as at that point, I was like, this is fucked now. Again, going back to what we very first talked about, something you feel special, now everyone else is part of it. It felt contrived. Yeah. Literally, everyone was wearing a smiley T-shirt, a bandana with a whistle and doing stupid dance. And it wasn't like that before, you know. I, 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 the clubs I was going to, literally, it, you'd have a punk next to a goth next to a really beautiful looking model, next to a guy in a suit, a banker, or it looked like an estate aide. It was a complete mix of people, mm. right? And then it just changed. It became definitely, I think it was probably around that. I mean, clubs, there were still great clubs going on, but it wasn't as mixed up, totally. It, it definitely wasn't as mixed. Okay. And, you know, yeah. Going back to the uh, the the kind of musical melting pot, if I can use that mm-hmm. cliche. Um, yeah, yeah. What was the, 
what was the wider culture around that? Like we talked before about you know, the, there being sort of supporting elements to musical cultures. Like what was the um, and this is in this kind of pre-acid house, uh, electro, industrial, punk, whatever. What were the other defining features of that scene, as it were, if there were any? Um, I mean, I think it was quite an international because I think you'll find there were clubs all over the world. Like you listen to, you know, Ron Hardy tape. Not all, yeah, okay, a lot of Ron Hardy tapes maybe veer more towards just being more soulful, particularly. But there's some Ron Hardy tapes when he's playing Frankie Goes to Hollywood next to Liaison Dangerous, next to Yellow, next to, you know, next to Art of Noise, right? So it was going on in Chicago. Baldelli, early Baldelli tapes, Beppe Loder tapes. You know, so this was an international thing. You had in inverted commas, cool young commas, cool young kids listening to a really weird selection of music. So I don't think they were. Defi- I think it was an. In- I think it was an international. You know that that whole that whole time during the eighties, I focus on it so much. Not not just because I lived it. It was an incredibly creative time. You know the emergence of new technology. The emergence of sampling, which to me like was amazing, because I grew, I was at college doing visual collage, and when I saw samplers and I could put things together. It was just an extension of that. It was just a really fertile time in all forms of creativity. You know, the things that came out of the eighties set the foundations for so much, you know, and it was, it was just a really eclectic, diverse moment in time that I can't, you know, to be there, I can't explain how crazy it was, but it really was, Super, super exciting time. Yeah, I've I've seen you argue this before, and um, it's, me argue me <laughs> or make this Never. make this point. Shall we say? Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I think the eighties is such an interesting time period because there's so much so much um, disparate stuff happening. So many kind of like forces pull, like pulling in different directions, whether it's kind of socio political yeah. or artistic. Yeah. Or totally, um, you know, hyper capitalism emerging at the same time as you know, different yeah. um, countervailing forces emerging. It was... Gone. Yeah, yeah. It, but but the, the, this is a weird... Like, you could feel like you could do anything. I really feel sorry for, for younger generations now, the current climate, especially in this country. It's so turned against you. Whereas... How do you, and how there's do you not mean much you can do about it. How do you mean by that, turned against you? I just... just in so many ways, it's kind of, less, the, the, you, you lost your, your freedoms, not there. Like for me, in that period of time, you know, you could live somewhere in any various places in London, where, you know, my studio is now in the middle of like, you know, cliche, but it's in the middle of Shoreditch, right? You know, I had a studio around the corner from here. It was cheap then, you know. You could go to parties in warehouses with, in the centre of London, with a thousand people and the police wouldn't close them down. You know, it was totally, it was, it was totally different moment in time. There was real freedom, but that was uh, also, you had Thatcherism going on, which is odd because, you know, it was a, it was a proper fight against that, that mentality. But at the same time, it's really weird, but I, you know, I awful to say that I would, you know, I got given money by the Prince's trust, which I think was a Thatcher kind of idea. And I would never have been able to set my my career up if it wasn't for that. Right. I got like a grant from the government or something to set shit up. And and I felt at the time creativity and you know, trust me, I'm not a Tory in any way whatsoever. I'm just saying that was fucking weird. 
it was just a, it was a mad time because you know I had AIDS. It was just it was it was a mad time because there were so many oppressive forces. But I felt like there was a real sense of optimism that creativity could fight against that. Right. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Let me ask. Let me ask you about uh, the kind of op- op- opposition to Thatcherism in particular, because that seemed to be a really uh, across like multiple areas seemed to be a real kind of like rallying cry. And again, I was, I was young enough to notice that in stuff like, you know, I remember starting to watch like TV comedy, for example, and, and being aware of people like Alexi Sale being you know, obviously yeah. <laughs> hating Margaret Thatcher. And I came from a very kind of labor voting household as well. So I, I was kind of had it yeah. uh, indoctrinated to me, but it definitely seems to have been like, really significant in galvanizing people. And I wonder like, is there, I mean, obviously we're living through a period now where there's been a Tory government for 13 years, three of, of, yeah. like, of the first period, obviously was a coalition, but there's been a, a long, long time where there's been this kind of monolithic, highly depressing, almost nihilistic approach to government in a, in a way which I think um, has certainly superficial similarities anyway with, with the government of the 1980s. I, I don't quite detect the same galvanizing or galvanized spirit by that. But like, can you just give put a bit of color on exactly what it was like in in that kind of Thatcher period in terms of people getting something out of it creatively? You know, I, I think there was still a, you know, the problem is that people have just been, I go back to that time in a minute, but through decades, people have just been beaten down, you know, and also... I think on, on a more important scale, the fact there's zero accountability now. So we might have hated Thatcher, we might have hated people around them, but there was a different level that there wasn't, well, not for me anyway, I didn't feel, I still felt there were figures I could probably respect right. in authority, yeah. right? That there would be some accountability for. Whereas that's, you know, since Brexit probably, this country has just changed so dramatically, right? That it's easy for people to lose hope. You know, I, I, I understand, and it was just—it was just different then. It was different because there was a freedom in London. You could just break open a, a warehouse, go in there, have a party, and the, probably the police wouldn't come and get you, right? And you know, it wasn't until later, you know, with Rave and this, you know, the. Um, Oh, damn, what was the bill? Um, Criminal Justice Act of 1994. Yeah, that, that that really changed things, you know, that really, and up to that point, there was a real complete sense of freedom. I can't explain, but it was built on optimism. Like I say, it, it, you know, you feel like you could do anything. You just literally could. There was people setting up businesses, people setting up labels, people setting up fashion labels, people doing art that were just being, I think people just felt positive. Mm. Or they were trying to get out their circumstances by being positive, right? Because there were opportunities, not opportunities built by the government, but you can make opportunities for yourself, opportunities that don't exist now because you can't, you know, you could squat somewhere, you could live somewhere quite cheap and and make music fairly cheap and release those records. You could probably sell 5,000 records, you know. You know, you could sell records out the back of your car. It's totally different. And... I don't know, maybe I, I wasn't that naive, but it just felt like a really incredibly creative time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. And I can I can certainly, yeah, identify that. 
as having been the case. And, music, and, music, and also, and yeah, musically as well. The, the thing is, this is pre-reality TV, right? So you, for me, I had posters on my wall of Madonna, Run DMC, Big Audio Dynamite. These people were like idols to me. They were like superheroes. They weren't like real people, right? So I didn't, I didn't know about their prior personal lives, their private lives. I never wanted to meet these people because they literally they're like superheroes to me. And now the world, you know, it's it's a different world. People want to know everybody's. People want to, to want to share and know everything about themselves. And the biggest thing is now everybody wants to be liked. No one gave a fuck about being liked. The people that I like most are the people that didn't want to be liked. So that's the problem. When you breed a culture, most people that did stuff didn't do it thinking, I'm going to do this because I want everybody to like me. I don't want to do this because I want to be popular. They were doing it because they just love doing it. And some people, you know, it's like weird people that just put out weird records. They're like, I don't care. I love doing this. If only 10 people get into it, I'm happy. I don't need, you know, and it's, it's a different attitude. The world has changed completely. You know, so everybody wants to be liked now. And everyone, nobody wants to get cancelled by saying the wrong thing. Yeah, that was going to be, yeah, so that was going to be my question. Was there any sort of equivalent of cancel culture in that landscape? No, because it, because there was, you know, for me, like it's important because drugs also play a big role, mm. right, in cultures, right. I grew up with weed culture, which was mellow, right, ecstasy, mellow. Start cocaine in the nineties fucked it all up. When coke, you know, it f- destroyed it all. And I'd say the rise of cocaine in terms of culture, in terms of subculture, counterculture, club culture, fucked so many things up. Made attitude, you know, attitude, violence, right? And and for me, you know, I've often said that social, being in social media is like being in a room of everyone coked out. They're not talking about themselves. And for me, that's the worst thing. I, I, being when I don't really do drugs at all, being stuck with someone coked up, talking about themselves—you can't get that. that has, that's how it feels, and it never used to feel like that. It was embarrassing. That's the thing now. For me to go on social media and say, "Hey, I've got a new record coming out. Listen to this," I feel like a cunt doing that because I grew up with anyone that would talk about themselves, promote themselves. You think they were a wanker? You'd be like, I don't. That, that in itself is, is absolutely fascinating, actually, because. True, but that. Sorry, go no, on. No, no, I mean, um, well, yeah, I mean, I was just going to say, because, I mean, that was absolutely the environment that I grew up in, too. And I remember when, um, when Facebook first became important as a kind of, you know, as a tool in music and my kind of early, yeah. early years as a DJ, early years of putting on nights, Facebook suddenly became important. And I remember getting a comment on on a on a Facebook post that I uh, posted, berating me for self promotion, right? Yeah, yeah. And and yeah. it was like I immediately knew what they were saying, but at the same time, mm-hmm. this is surely how this you know this is how this is how it has to work yeah. in this context, right? So what am I supposed to do? It does, but it, it but then it you know just it, it, it you know this is, we're talking about a different moment in time. Like, it's different. You, you say to someone, hey, what are you up to? I'm doing this. But it's like if someone walks up to you, hey, hey you know what? I've got a new record out. You'd be like, mate, leave me alone. <laughs> and that's, you know, and, and so this is all these things add up to, you know, I think that, you know, I think that the it, all these things add up to a, a, a far bigger picture. 
from the beginning earlier on me talking about violence or pornography, right? Becoming mainstream instead of being subculture, right? Has an effect. Drug of choice, cocaine, drug of choice for most people now, right? That creates an issue. Politicians with zero accountability, that becomes an issue. It just, it just slowly disintegrates the foundations of what a, a, a decent society should be, you know? And they're all interlinked, right? And, and, and the fact that everything is shared, everyone, you know, naive, like I said, you know, me having posters on the wall that, of these people that were my superheroes, right? I didn't know anything about their private lives. When you rip that, rip that kind of thing down, the facade down, and you see these people are real people, and they're like, you know, someone's on there, look at, you know, I look at someone, talk and say, hey, guess what, guys, my fans, I've got a new record coming out. It's like, for fuck's sake. <laughs> or like, it, it just destroys it all. Everything is just kind of like, you know, which is a good thing because we need to destroy everything for something new to come up. Right. So, I'm, you know, trust me, I'm pessimistic, but at the same time, I'm hugely optimistic that there's going to be a counteracting movement to all of this in the next decade. There has to be, you know. But, um, but going back to your original question, yeah, the, the, that period of time was a really beautiful kind of semi-naive and everyone thought they could do achieve great things just by doing what they loved and being creative. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Yeah, I mean, how much was the political situation a, like a specific motivation for people? For me, per, for, for the scenes I was involved in, I don't remember that. I remember the I, I got involved in an artist against apartheid. Yeah, thing. I mean that's that's a really that was a key example of the time, wasn't it? And that was a specific yeah. thing against the Thatcher government. Yeah, I remember also bigger because Arthur Baker did Sun City, and so I remember specifically because because you know hip hop culture and the apartheid thing became a big thing, and I think the minor strike as well. I remember there being things, but but I I don't. I, I, yeah, I, I, in terms of culturally, it was certainly important. Um, but to be honest, for me, I was just going out, having fun, mm, yeah, trying to hear as much good music and meet as many pretty girl, women as I could, you know. And that, that was that's what you know, going. You know, I wasn't. I said I didn't. I drunk, but I didn't do drugs really. I wasn't into that kind of side of it. So it's just about hearing music and and meeting as many pretty girls as I could. Mm. Girls, I'm saying when I was 16, 17, obviously not. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Yeah. Uh, what was your first experience of Acid House becoming a thing? Um, like, when did it seem like a thing? Thing. 
I, no, I'm just thinking because I remember I remember hearing I think at a boy's own thing or something I heard future yeah. acid tracks, and that was like something else. But I was you've got to remember because I was doing artwork for all the Champion records at the time, right? Mm. So um, again, like I said, it wasn't something like wow, here's Acid House because. It, it was a fluid thing. It wasn't like suddenly there was an Acid House club because I went to, I remember going to these things at Soul to Soul and Norman Jay, Judge Jules, Seb Fontaine, Family Function, we'd do warehouse parties and House and Acid started to be played there. Colin and Eddie Richards were playing Acid House. So that music just crept in, mixed in with other things. Mm. You know, there's a great clip I found, I put on social media uh, a while ago, uh, very recently about um, Colin playing um, Clink Street, Mr. C there, and they were playing like Yellow, Bostitch, into Lime, but then into an acid track. You know, so it literally was like that, you know. Yeah. Um, so I, it, it, it came to me quite naturally, and also through, because I work in a champion records, doing record sleeves, the great thing about Champion, they were in Halston and next door to, 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 the, to the store was a record importers. And so what happened is the importers would get all the records in, Champion would pick up the records straight away. They'd hear the records before anyone else and license them straight away. And I got the chance to hear records. Some of the records I didn't even do covers for. I'd go in there, they'd sell me imports for cheap. Um, and a lot of the early Acid House I would have heard through that. Yeah, because I mean, you did a load of those early Todd Terry things, didn't you? I was, I was uh, looking at your yeah, uh, yeah, the yeah, yeah. my era. Um, what? Um, I mean, I've I've been sort of collecting various different accounts of this period on uh, yeah. on the show. Um, yeah, a guy called Gerald was a was a really good one because obviously he was kind of uh, on both sides of the um, of the conversation, as it were. Um, with having a big hit at the time, but also being very much like still a, a kind of a raver as well. Yeah, like you. I mean, you'd already started making music at this point. No, no, I had. I, I didn't. The first bit of music I ever made was inspired by Adrian. Right. With a, with I had a Commodore sixty four sampler that had two and a half second sampling on it, and I made a collage thing that kind of sounded like an early Tackhead record. Right, right, and I put it in with Morgan Khan did a Street Sounds competition to. To, uh, for a UK hip hop compilation, I think it was to send in tracks. I did that, and then I then I got a W Roman W thirty, but that wasn't till maybe the early nineties. So I wasn't making music at all. Late eighties, I hadn't even made a bit of music. Well, no, I, apart from that thing with the Commodore sixty four mucking around, mm. but I wasn't making music then at all. No. Did you play any instruments as a kid or anything like that? No, no, no. I mean, for for me, that's the thing. I I made sound because I was into art and noise right. and. And Adrian and on your sound records, which weren't, wasn't music, right? First round DMC record, just drum. I was into noise, you know. I was into sounds and collage and noise. Yeah, I mean that's that's very common to what Adrian says actually is, um, about his um, kind of routine and his kind of, um, I guess his his work generally. Actually, that's that's basically how he seems to characterise it. Is that he's just someone who likes noises, making noises, right? Yeah, but Adrian's a very, I think, he's a spiritual, a deeply spiritual person, you know. And I think a lot of his music comes from a very spiritual place, whereas mine wasn't from anything like that at all. Yeah, I mean, I was I was actually 
quite disappointed with my interview with Adrian. I didn't feel like I got any anywhere near the uh, no, the true man there. Annoyingly, I'm going to have to try and get him back for another one. I think he, um, no, it was a good interview. I heard, he was talking about things like I interviewed him a long time ago, and it was uh, before I did the compilation for him, mm. and it was kind of what spurred me to the compilation. It was really interesting because a lot of the music that I, most of the music I love. So I did an interview with him on Strong Room Radio or something. It's still up somewhere. And I was playing all the weird records that he literally didn't. He was like, what are you, are you really into this shit? <laughs> okay. It was all the more experimental stuff that, and, and he just, I could tell that it wasn't, I, I don't think at that point in time, he really understood the importance of it. Right. And also I think because a lot of it was made in the period when after Prince Farai died, and I think he was in a bad place. So a lot of those records he tried to talk to about, not ministry, but ministry and stuff, I'm under the impression he kind of gave me, but he was just in a weird place. So it came from a different place, but those records were really important. Then only later when I did put the compilation together through Warp and he kind of got it. It was like, well, actually, yeah, right. this kind of stranger stuff, younger people are into it, connects with them. And he, you know, his sonic experimentation, without a doubt, I would never have made, or you know, it, it took me in a, you know, he, he spoke about, I think the nearer democracy starts to fade that record changed my life. I'd never heard, you know, and again, it was hip hop inspired, but I'd never heard a record like that. Sonically, I'd never heard people do anything like that. So he was just like a, it was a, it was a complete game changer. Yeah, totally. I mean, one of the things that I was trying to do with him that I totally failed to do was to try and get, like put it in some sort of context as we were doing earlier, actually with the, you know, the kind yeah. of, you know those collisions of, of different styles, which, well, obviously so inspiring to you and he obviously just doesn't think about it in that way at all it's much more of a kind of him just messing around in the studio that's kind of what i got from it anyway but this goes back to that thing we said at the beginning about the best records you make of the things you do in an hour right because i think a lot of that stuff he did was just playing around was having fun you know he, he said that in that you know he was he, he wanted to build a catalog he just made loads of albums he was just fucking around with his mates in the studio yeah. he wasn't being deeply yeah. cerebral about it and that's why I say spiritual may be the wrong word, but his, you know, his creativity and his his his, his sonic um, language comes from a different place, you know. And it's so much about collaboration as well, a lot and technology. Going back to what we said about that point in time, you know, so much of it is driven by technology. You know, if an eight oh eight, the eight oh eight hadn't come out, what would you know? Can you imagine? Yeah, yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. You know. Really, you know, I think that you could, you know, it's another conversation, but you can definitely define cultural or musical, important musical moments in time by technology. Most of it probably Roland and Akai technology. Yeah, I mean, it has been remarked upon before on this show that, you know, those Japanese engineers don't get anywhere near as much props as they deserve, even if the instruments were, you know, used in different ways to which they were originally intended. Like, it's just incredible that the influence... No, during, during that period, during probably eight, that, that, te- that decade, the 808, the 303, the MPC, the 950, the Atari ST, yeah. if they hadn't happened nothing would have happened. All the musical forms we love now would never have existed. And Adrian, in terms of... Or, or would, in, would exist in a, a pretty different kind of a way, right? Because, I mean, a similar similar stuff may have happened with different technology, but like the, the sound of those technologies, but particularly the instruments anyway, is so prevalent even now, even the music that gets made now, right? Yeah, yeah. and they were, those things were kind of affordable. 
maybe not the area at the beginning, but those things became affordable. It's just, um, yeah. And, but, you know, and Adrian particularly, I think, you know, his use of AMS delays and, you know, see, this is the thing. I, you know who taught me how to make music? It was the stereo MCs because right. I, I, talking about my introduction to hip hop and even to Acid House slightly, actually, because I work for G Street Records who are based around the corner in Clerkenwell, where I am now. And the stereo MCs had a studio in the basement and they would make their music with a bell delay, which had a bell BD-80 delay, which had like about one second of sampling time. And they'd have maybe have a few of them and they'd trigger them with an 808. Right. And I'd sit in this because I did their artwork for them and I'd just listen to them making music. So I learned so much from them. And it was so, you know, it's, the stuff they made, they don't get enough respect at all. Mm. For, because I think they, they were really important trailblazers at the time. And G Street, actually, some of the first, because I did a cover for a Funtopia record. So I was hearing some Acid House. You know, I did obviously, well, it's not really Acid House, I'll house you. But there was, again, that, you know, I'm trying to think who else came through at that time. But, yeah, but anyway, yeah, I, I got a sidetrack. But the stereo season, hearing them make music, that, they taught me how to make music. And also Double, also Double Trouble, lead guest at this Noisegate Studios, where, where I did the first ever remix I did, they were pretty... You know, went on to do Rebel MC and stuff like that. They were kind of important. They worked with a lot of people mixing and helping to produce and program artists around that time. So, yeah, you mentioned that it was messing around with a C64. I had a Spectrum, by the way, to play games okay. when I was a kid. Oh, I had, I had all of them. I had ZX81 Spectrum. You know, I had all of them. Yeah, nice. So, did you, so was it just a case of sitting down and, and messing around until you reached a point where you were? sort of confident enough to go into a studio and no what the f- i was because I, I was the, the, the thing is because i had this parallel career doing during record sleeves for people during that late eight, early nine. which you were really successful at by this point well i was really living i was living at home with my mum and dad i was like 18 19 and i couldn't afford to rent anywhere so i was having you know i, I was living for free so which meant I could do some work for next to nothing. So I started out punting my work for free to people and then I soon got paid. But um, yeah, I, I, right, right place, right time, champion and G Street. And then onto something, I, I, you know, it was just putting out some amazing fact, fact, let, me, let me interrupt you. Can you, can you tell the story about uh, going to the WAG to blag your way to an S-Express album cover? I know, but, okay, yeah, because Mark Moore, I'm still friendly with today, God bless him. I used to go to the WAG two, three times a week, maybe. And one night, I think it was Mark Moore and maybe Tim Simonon playing from Bomb the Bass or Mark with, mm. maybe it was a love night. With, I can't remember. No, love with CJ McIntosh and Dave Durrell. But anyway, I got chatting to Mark. For, again, because it was a really, it was, I felt like it was a genuine community of people. People were unlike that thing about actually about having people up on my wall that were idols. That pre-Acid House time, there was a community of people that kind of knew each other and Mark was very approachable. And I think I just got chatting to him. I said, I'm a designer. I'm a, I think I just left college. And he said, bring your portfolio in. So I went into the WAG early one evening and took my portfolio and he liked it. And I was like, he's like, okay, do you want to do a record sleeve for me? And it just happened, yeah. really. I was, managing, I was actually managing to bomb the bass as well, beat this, but it didn't happen for some reason. Um, 
But just, yeah, I'm like, where's Wally, man? I was just there. I was everywhere. I was going out. There was a point in time I was going out five times a night between like 88 and probably 96. I was going out four or five times a night in London. Literally. There was so many great clubs to go to, you know? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. What kind of, I mean, you, you mentioned that this is a kind of pre-acid house period and we've kind of um, talked about the musical landscape, but um, I mean, Bomb the Bass as well, are a, well, it will be a familiar name to everyone, I think, listening to this, or most people listening to this anyway. But what kind of music was that at the time? What do you mean? What was it defined as? Yeah, what did people think it, like, what genre was no, it? No, but that came out, because you had Double Dean Steinsky, you know, the Lesson One, right? Mm. Do you know that record? Yes, yeah. If you don't, it doesn't matter. Okay, so I'm not testing you. I'm just trying to put it in context, sorry. No, 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 I, 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 I mean, I, to be honest, I don't know much of this stuff, but I do know that. Okay, so, yeah. so no, but that was a really genre-defining record because you had yep. that was a cut, for people that know where it is, a cut-up record, a DJ record, because you had mega mixes and stuff before that, but it was a cut-up record yeah. of like funk with Culture Club, James Brown, Afghan Barter. It was a cut-up record. And that record really, you know, that was massively influential to a lot of people. Cold Cut started doing like cut-up stuff and then Bomb the Bass beat, and then there was Mars Pump Up the Volume. Yeah. And then Beat This, which was, I suppose, a cut-up, it was like a hip-hop cut-up record. Right. You know? Yep. Before you had mashups, it was like a, you know, end up, that's the weird thing as well, because when you say my introduction to Acid House, it was probably through Top of the Pops. Because mm. Final yeah. Jack Master Funk was a hit record. Rays, break Rays, you know, or, um, oh, what's the one, um, Jack the Groove. Mm. That was like a top 10 record. Yeah. So it's really interesting. These records became big chart records. Major labels put lots of money into it to try and make it work. It didn't work. It fl- and then it built itself up again from the roots. So a lot of the first, you know, you even have Mel and Kim, pop, you know, PWL record, pop, um, Start Kim Waterman record, was a kind of an acid house record. Yeah, yeah. It was a... Totally, yeah, very much dance pop, right? Dance very pop. Good. And that, 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 that's what happened. The major labels tried to make it the next big thing. It didn't happen. And then it started up from the underground again. So that was going backwards. That was my interest to acid house is probably as much through you know, through the charts, because those records are big records, you know? Yeah. Sorry, but, going, but yeah, going back to Beat This, Beat This was, yeah, like a cut-up record, I think, you know, which kind of was a bridge, a, a bridge, bridge the gap between a lot of things, you know? Yeah, this is a fascinating period. I mean, I read the, uh, there's a fascinating book about the KLF stuff in this period. I can't remember the guy's, uh, the guy's name. I never remember the guy's name, but it's fascinating. Um, but yeah, the, cut up records that they made before in in this kind of like yeah. 87 88 i suppose period i and i've never heard them but they sound fucking crazy and they had a couple of were these under there. the name klf or are they under something else no it was before i think um god i should i'm interested i don't know but they were, they were, i'm trying to think that particularly there was a basic there was a bunch of like i think it was like feeling james which was i think as a um Oh, what's his name? Um, Danny Crivet thing, maybe. Yeah. There was a few like hip hop kind of cut up edits, which led to, you know, then then less than one came up, and that was like came out, and that was like whoa. And then I said, then cold cut, beat this from the bass, and there was a various few other things that came out around that time mm. that were like, um, you know, cold cut were pretty instrumental in that. So cold cut and 
on the base, really, for UK-wise. Meat Beat, you know, you can get Meat Beat Manifesto, starting mucking around with kind of sample kind of stuff, then color, you know, color box as well on 4AD. A lot of kind of new sample-based music started to arrive, you know. And suppose that, yeah, that was, you know, this is pre-having to clear samples as well, right? Right. So it was, yeah. it was it, 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 game, you know, you could just do what you wanted. So my original question was, to, I was asking you about how you got started doing it. So you have you've got your wow, we've gone off. Yeah, how I how how I got started doing it was um, a guy from uh, there was a label called Fashion Records, a, re- a really important British reggae label. Yep. Oh, yeah, and um, Chris Lane, the guy who ran the record label, I did a cover for him for something, and I just mentioned that I did music, and I, and I was like, "Can I do a remix for you?" He's like, "Yeah." So he paid for me to go into a studio at this place, Noisegate, where Double Trouble worked. This guy Lee Guest. I didn't do any programming. I just took the records in and he put it together for me. It was a remix. You can hear it online called it's why the fools fall in love by CJ Lewis and Philip Leo. And they put the first record I ever did together for me. Um, it sampled like sting and KRS one. It was, and it ended up on like some Island records, ragged hip hop compilation uh, in, that, in that time. It did, it did quite well. And then this was, so that was the first commercial thing I did. And then I said, then I bought this W, Roland W30, started to teach, which was like a big sampling keyboard, fantastic machine. I think it maybe had 20 seconds in it. Roland W30, I've never heard of that, actually. Okay. I know that Lee, um, Liam from the Prodigy, I think it's the first thing he used. Right. It was, great, it was just a big, it was a big keyboard with a floppy disk on it that you could sample in and play the sample up and down the keyboard and really loop things simply. Yeah, nice. So that was probably 91 or something. And then I started making kind of, then I started biting my hip hop label and I started producing stuff on the label using that W30. And that's kind of how I got into making music professionally. The label being Bite It, is that correct? That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And this was very much a hip hop thing as opposed to the other musical stuff that we've been talking about. That was because by 90, you know, you've got to think golden age hip hop, right? Early 90s was incredible time. Um, and, and what happened was for me, so I went through from this journey and then a tallow house started and I hated it. I thought it was <laughs> so cheesy, right. like black box, all these records, it was fucking awful. And the club started to get cheesy. The crowd, this is, it, it got really like what at the time we called Debbie and Sharon, like really fucking like people. This is it. You know, you got room in London. Handbag house. Handbag house. It, but, you know, and, and but the thing you got to remember because, like I said, pre that time there was a really small amount of people going out to clubs, and most of the people were going to really cheesy discos after the pub. Mm. And Acid had Acid House broke that open, but for me in some bad ways, you know. Yeah. For me, like the whole, I went to some boys' own events, and there was like you know, like flying records and stuff like that, right? Mm. So, but it, they were really laddie. It was ex-football hooligans that had all taken E. And because I wasn't really into taking drugs, right, I was like, first of all, I'd go to clubs. If the music was shit, I would be like, leave. I'm not staying. Whereas all my mates were out their heads would just stay. This is amazing. I'm like, this is music. Shit, I'm going. And also, I'd see people that would want to beat me up because I was football hooligans normally walking down the street. They were now hugging and wanted to kiss me. I was like... Fucking fake wanker. You wanted to beat me up. You wanted to beat me up a fucking six months ago. So I'd go into like, there's this place flying records, which is I think in Kensington, it's just full of men. 
It was full of fucking ex-football hooligans, a whole boys' own thing. It, it, it didn't excite me. And the music was just boring. I thought it was pretty boring. So I got back in, I, I, you know, hip-hop really took, took over me, you know, and so I decided to set up a hip-hop label. And I was just living and breathing hip-hop. I became, at that point, really quite not narrow, but I was, yeah, I was really, and I could make hip-hop, you know. And so that's, so I had, that's I had a, kind of, you know. Sorry to interrupt you. But no, I, no, not to go. But I had a quote from you about this and about this period, which is, so the quote is, hip-hop visually had already started to be a cliche with the girls, guns and cars stuff. And I wanted to go against that. That's with the with the label yeah that because i started the label in maybe 90 well the first release i did was the brotherhood which was a jewish rap crew and they lived in edgeware and so i worked in the record shop and they did a record called descendants of the holocaust which i think they were pre-third base so they're one of the first they just wanted to talk about a jewish experience and i found that quite exciting so I did their record and then I did a mighty, I did a mighty ethnics record. And then I started taking it more serious, not more seriously, but I thought this could actually become something because Westwood and people were playing, were really into the records. And the aesthetically, most of the, you had, you had British UK hip hop labels, which the artwork was all pretty shit. The production wasn't, I didn't think it was very good. It was that whole Britcore thing, hijack and um, sons of Noy. I mean, some of it was great, but a lot of it, I didn't, I mean, visually and aesthetically, I wasn't into it. And I wanted to do stuff which sounded as good as American records. Um, but me, the American me, aesthetic was, you know. Sorry, let me ask you a question about that specifically. <clears throat> yeah. Because um, I was listening to a Jimmy Iovine interview yesterday. And he, probably in some kind of a self-serving way, was very bullish on how The Chronic was the most important hip-hop record ever. Yeah. But I, I'm getting the impression that you were probably more into the hit, into the New York Sound? Oh yeah, I was totally. I, I wasn't into it. Apart from, yeah, I mean, I was really into East Coast. So West Coast. Apart from the hieroglyphics, um, Souls of Mischief, Delta Funky Home Sapien, Casual, all that whole crew. There was hardly any West Coast music I liked. Yeah. Because lyrically, the West Coast was normally all just about bitches and guns, and it was fucking boring. And at that point in time, the chance of seeing a gun in London, you'd never see a fucking gun. Yeah. Right, it was it was an alien world, a culture, a violent culture that I didn't want much to do with. Uh, it was a misogynist culture and a, and a misogynist, bigoted, violent culture. A lot of it, and I had no interest in it. So that basically, definitely, I mean, not to say that wasn't in, in East Coast rap as well, but it wasn't as omnipresent. I think. Yeah, I mean, gang, was, gangster rap is, was a West Coast thing, right? Um, yeah, I mean, you still had Koji rapper talking about guns and violence and stuff. But in a sure, but, yeah, but there's the, the genre and the, that whole... Yeah, the genre, of, yeah, the genre, and I just wasn't so... Yeah, when I started the label, I was trying to do, like, I, you know, I was visually I was inspired more more like by ECM and, and record sleeves like that, and I wanted hip-hop to be taken seriously. So the artists I work with, I wanted to do try and do something a bit different. Um Musically, I was very inspired by Muggs and Cypress Hill, so the first things I did were complete rip-offs of him, but then I soon found my own voice. And, um, yeah, and then, then Richard Russell, who worked, used to, I used to work with me in the record shop, he, he was working at Excel, and he really loved the Brotherhood and the Bite of stuff I was doing, and he asked me to do a, a remix for House of Pain. 
because um, Jump Around had been a hit and they didn't have another hit on the album. He said, Trevor, can you take one of these tracks for the album and remix? I did it and it became like a top 10 hit. Yeah, what was the name of the track? That's Top of the Morning to You. Oh, right. Right. I, yeah, so that, so that was hit. But again, I kind of saw myself as being like an unofficial member, UK member of the Soul Assassins, even though <laughs> Muggs had never heard of me. Didn't, but I took that thing. But then soon after that, because I was working for G Street doing record sleeves, there was a band, they signed a band called New Kingdom that were like a fucking crazy psychedelic hip hop thing. And I loved, I was like, I want to do a remix for this. Okay. So I did a remix for this track, Cheap Thrills, which ended up becoming the, the radio version. And that was my turning point because I really found my own sound, which was a kind of trippy, dubby, electronic kind of hip hop thing that, which was pre-trip hop. And it was just my own thing. And then I started getting loads of work off of that. So that's kind of how... That happened at the same time I was doing Bite It and 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 um, releasing other UK hip hop artists. What was UK hip hop like as a sort of community of of people at that point? Uh, it was very very. Um, it was so few. Everybody there was you couldn't make any money. You couldn't make a living out of it. Mm. Everybody was jealous of each other. There was very little camaraderie. If you came, like I said, I I didn't come up from the same place where other people came from necessarily. So I grew up listening to Trevor Horn records and, and pop records and um, had bigger aspirations for sonically where I was going. Um, and a lot of it was this particularly, there was a very kind of, I, I was an outsider. That's why I called myself the underdog at the beginning. I didn't want anyone to know who I was. Photos I took were like me hidden in a phone box. I kept my, I wanted to be, I wanted to be this mystery figure. Um, and it was just weird. It was a tough, you know, people had a lot of resentment towards me. They thought I was just like a, a stereotype kind of rich boy. And the only way I could do it is because I had money for my parents, which was bollocks. My mum worked in a fucking fish shop. Mm. Um, so there was so much kind of like nonsense going on. It was very fucking difficult. And so few people, you know, and that's why when the Brotherhood eventually got signed to Virgin, it made it even worse. Right. No one really, you know, at the time, very few people supported the Brotherhood. Most people dissed them. Um, the press loved it, but the, the, the scene per se weren't really supportive. It wasn't, wasn't a very supportive place to be because was, everybody was trying to take a piece of the pie and it was so much resentment, so much jealousy. Mm. It was horrible. Right. Really horrible. Okay. I mean, you mentioned there that you had wider, bigger aspirations for what you were doing. Was that something that was like right there in a conscious way? Yeah, I just wanted, you know, for me, I just looked at Def Jam. I thought, fucking hell, I want to do a British shop at label that's as good as Def Jam. It looked as good and sounded as good. Never got anywhere close, but I wanted to, you know, but the record covers I did at the time for hip-hop records were undoubtedly revolutionary. They were totally different from anyone else, the hip-hop covers that anyone else was doing. Revolution is a strong word. That's not, I mean, <laughs> but they were like, um, but they probably, actually for hip-hop, they were maybe. There were very, very, a friend of mine, Donald Christie, a photographer, was taking photographs for them. Um, you know, they really stood out. Um, so, with this, so, well, yeah, oh, sorry. Go on, sorry. I was just going to ask like, you've got these two parallel things going on, which kind of fit together. Yeah. Um, parallel in what way? What do you mean? Well, Isn't you're doing what? the covers and you're doing the music. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And they kind of fit together, but not totally directly. Yeah. But did you have um 
similar aspirations for both? I mean, did you secretly want to be a, you know, a, a pop star kind of thing? Or maybe not a pop star, but you know what I mean? No, no, no. But, but, but the thing was, you've got to remember, so I made no money from doing the record label, but I made a living from doing record sleeves. And I was doing record sleeves for like Eric B and Rakim and like ended up doing really big artists and stuff. And also the thing was, I, I didn't let any, many people know that I was the underdog because it would have been really difficult for me to do a record for someone if they knew I was also an artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I thought that might have been a problem. So I kept them quite separate from each other at the beginning. And then it kind of flipped round because I ended up doing record sleeves for people. There's this record label called Pulse 8 Records, which started putting out loads of like Rizala, Everybody's Free. And I did some really shit record sleeves and I was like, I've had enough of this. Mm. because the music started getting shit and the people I was dealing with were a nightmare. And then I started concentrating on, on the, on the, my music career full time. And I kind of gave up doing records for a long time. And I just focused on the music. Oh, okay. That's what I, didn't, happened. I didn't realize that. Okay. So what, so where, what point, what, what year was that, that you, that was maybe when I did the house of pain thing. Okay. And then I had, and then I had a manager, this guy, Mart, uh, sadly passed away. Um, during that quite close to that period and he was really hooked up i met him in honest john i used to go digging for breaks at honest john's record and james Lavelle used to work behind the counter mm. and um he started managing me and he started getting me remix big he was hooked up with labels and i started getting remixes from other from labels and i could actually make a living from it so i kind of stopped doing the record covers for quite some time and I've read a lot about your remixes. Were you most, was that most of what you were doing at that point as opposed to doing original tracks? Yeah, that's all I, I had. But, well, you've got to remember back then, to be honest with you, you could get, you could get five, six grand to do a remix. Yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, fuck, <laughs> you know, there's a lot of money back then. I was like, it was like, this is, I don't know, you know, it was, it was mental. It's pretty good money now, to be honest. No, exactly. It was, it was a dip, you know, when I was doing big remixes, I was getting paid. Yeah. So I didn't have to do the record covers anymore. Um, I wasn't doing, I mean, I, you know, you know, as far as it was, it was max, you know, most of the time I was probably getting a couple of grand of remix, but it was still good. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I suppose what I was asking with that original question was yeah, like, to what extent was, well, I mean, the, the, the secondary question there would have been like, to what extent was there a heavy heart in giving up doing the, the sleeves, despite what you've just said? There was no, he- there was no heavy heart. I was like sick of it. Right. I was dealing with people going, this guy's a fucking idiot. Uh, Why am I even <laughs> yeah, yeah. doing this? I get that. I get that. And you've, you've already said that you got frustrated with it, but was there any kind of residual, I guess, artistic ambition there is, I suppose is what I mean. No, no, because also you've got to remember that what, also what happened to be honest with you, I was, I, I developed this particular style hmm. and other people started copying it. And, and and became maybe more successful than me at doing it for bigger artists. I was like, I'd had enough. No, there, there was no heavy heart because I'd feel like I felt I'd exhausted it. I, you know, I've, I've never had a real job in my entire life apart from working in that that suit shop when I was a kid and working in the record shop. So I only ever did stuff I wanted to do. And when I started getting to a situation when I had to earn a living, which is incredibly fortunate, I know, but earn a living doing something I didn't that didn't make me happy, I couldn't do it anymore. There was no heavy heart. Because what I do has to be driven by passion and it has to be driven by, it's got to make me happy, right? And it, I wasn't happy. So I was really happy doing remixes for people. I really loved it. You know, getting the, ch- I learned getting master reels of like a Pete Rock production 
or a bomb squad or, or get a made produce or mugs get you know getting the, i learned how to make music by listening to how they had put the tracks together you know it was mental it was an incredible time you know i really loved it i was working in a studio on holloway road a little studio in the basement and it was just a really fertile time i i yeah it, it was the best time really fancy well you know in terms of my career doing so I was just making a remix every week sometimes more and I just loved it it was a t- you know I, I hit a point when I was doing stuff that didn't sound like anything that anyone else is doing after those initial things which sounded like mugs mm. you know I, I felt like wow I've got my own sound and it sounds totally unique so you know which were the best ones to pick out a couple of ones that you particularly uh well, well the, the new kingdom cheap thrills a ma- my massive attack remix for protection. Mm. Um, I did a massive. I did a few massive attack remixes. The one I did for Sly as well. Um, you know, they're, they're key. What you know, I did loads of. I can't remember. I've got. I did so many. Sure. But you know, it was really like, yeah, I felt like I carved, made my own kind of like. I, I didn't compromise. It's on my own terms. And I was working with artists, and I only did remixes of tracks that I thought were great and I never did a remix I thought I could I had a big head and I was thinking I'll only do it if I can make it better than the original or as good yep. otherwise I wouldn't I wouldn't even attempt it um, and people really like you know the people that I kept not that I did things to be liked but the people I respected liked it whereas before when I was making British hip hop and all those the pillars of the UK hip hop had no respect for me right I was like okay I'm not doing hip hop anymore this is something else you know, the Brotherhood album I did that got signed to Virgin, musically, I, I was just, I had a remit. I just wanted to sample mainly, old, I was sampling like Soft Machine and Robert Wyatt and, and Brian Auger and British music and progressive rock and stuff that other people weren't really get sampling. I was trying to, you know, I was, the Americans didn't even know about mm. at that time, pre-YouTube. It was like, you know, me digging for records and fighting, traveling the world and going to record shops, finding really mad records, records that were really cheap because no one else would now that are really expensive. It was just fun, you know. It was a, you know, technically I was just using, I used two 950s to do everything. It was, you know, no stereo sampling. I I don't think I ever did, and most of those underdog remixes, everything was mono samples, you know. It was, I don't know, it was just a fun time. So I didn't know, I didn't miss doing record sleeves in the slightest. Mm. There was no heavy heart at all. And also I was designing record covers for my own releases. Even better, that was, that was probably the most exciting thing. So I had my own record label. I could produce music on it and design the sleeves for myself. Right, okay. So that, so that I was still there. I was still yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So how do you get from there to output records and the playgroup? So I was doing the Underdog remixes and the Brotherhood album. Um, in the space of, I think, a year, my manager, Marks, my friend, one of my best friends, he passed away tragically. He was like just dropped dead one day. Sure. And it was quite pivotal. Yeah, he literally just came out of the gym, sent a, oddly sent a message to me and a bunch of us saying hi, and then he, next thing we he, he just dropped dead, had an aneurysm. Wow. Young guy had, yeah, had his whole life ahead of him. And that was the first point in my life when I felt like I was in, I, I was, you know, I felt quite indestructible. Like talking about these things before, going out, being optimistic, to, you know, that period of time when you're young, you don't have, you know, you feel like you're, you feel like you can do anything. Well, you did that period. You could feel like you could do anything. Yeah. And he passed away. And then the Brotherhood album, 
um, the band, uh, the Brotherhood album, I produced all the music, wrote all the music, was involved in mixing it as well. The band just did the lyrics. I did art directed the album, the artwork with Dave McKean, the guy did Sandman artwork, beautiful artwork. And the band, because Mark's passed away, they got a new manager. A guy used to manage, an American guy used to manage Gangstar and stuff like that. And he put it into their heads they didn't need me anymore. So thinking that he could re-sign them to the label and make money himself. Right. But the people at Virgin were my friends. And, you know, I did this guy, Ashley Newton, who ran Virgin, was amazing. There was two guys, Ray, Ray Cooper and Ashley Newton, who were the head of Virgin. And they, you know, if you think about what they signed, Soul to Soul, they had 10 records, Circa. Fantastic. Nana Cherry, really great A&R people. And I got very, not friendly with them, but they respected my work and I respected them. And then when this guy, Neil, tried to throw me out the band and the, and the band, basically, I did no interviews at all. I wanted to keep in the background. It just went to their heads. And they thought they could do it without me. And then they chucked me out of the band and they got dropped straight, dropped straight away. Right. Okay. And it just got really, yeah, which is, I knew would happen. And I was kind of had enough of it anyway. I was working with other hip hop artists that it just got frustrating. The whole hip hop thing, the scene had become really toxic. Mm. And so this combination of being thrown off the brotherhood project, which I helped develop my manager dying and the scene getting toxic just made me take time off and reassess exactly what I wanted to do. And I found solace in all those weird records I was sampling to make music, weird avant-garde jazz rock records and electronic records and odd things. And I thought, you know what? Why don't I just start a label just putting out weird records, you know? Mm. That's literally what, and then I started Output. Right. Um, Actually, sorry, there there was a question I wanted to ask about starting the, the previous label. Yeah. From a sort of operational perspective, how did you go about doing that? Like, did you get a, a distribution deal immediately? How did you do the back end stuff? Like, all, all that. I think, no, I was, I, was, well, I, was fun, I was funding myself because of the record sleeve stuff. So I wasn't making money. Mm. I think I, with, with Bite It, I, was, I, didn't, I only released maybe 12 records in a period of a few years. It, so I wasn't releasing loads of stuff. But you still got to get them out there, though. So, I mean, stuff like distribution. No, I, I, no but I, you know, I started off literally at the back of my car. Right, yeah, yeah. It was great, going to record shop. The best style, yeah. Sale of Return. Here's this thing. Westwood played it. Do you want to have 50 copies? Sale of Return, sure. Mm. Sell, sold them all out. And then I think, I, think I, I think at the beginning I did that, and then I can't remember who I worked with, but then I just went to a distributor once I started selling, and then and I just... You know, the truth is, up to very recently, you know, you, uh, it's good now. You can learn about how to run a record label. You, I, I just made it up as I went along. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's why I'm asking you, because I did the same and lots of people did do the same. But, I mean, it's fascinating the different routes that people took, you know. No, no, I just, I, you know, I, I just forget about MCPS, PRS, all that stuff. Didn't give a fuck about that. I just, like, pressed up a record sold it, gave half the money profit to the band, kept the rest of it. Mm. Pretty simple. Yep. Um, contract, no contracts, just a handshake. Yep. Um, didn't ben- I had no interest in ripping the art. It didn't benefit me to rip anyone off. There was no point. I was making a living doing something else. It wasn't like I wasn't doing this to make money anyway. And in fact, all the, most, of, most of the time, even with output, I said, you know what, you're not going to make money out of this, but I can guarantee you're going to get pressed. Because I had, you know, I knew that, 
I was not friend, but I knew people. That whole scene growing up through that 80s period, going to clubs, knowing people in the art, fashion world, that music world, those people went on to be editors of magazines, you know? Yep. So I was fortunate, again, being there at the right place, right time. I, I, you know, the records were good. They deserved to have the attention. It wasn't like they were, you know, they wouldn't have ever written about a record if it was shit. Mm. But I was, I was, you know, and also I was, I was supportive of people, right? So it was a genuine culture. I was part of a culture of people in music that I supported those people. They supported me. Yeah, and you've all got to believe in each other for that to work, right? There's always got to be a kind of like common confidence. Yeah. And there was, you know, there's like hip hop connection um, were pretty supportive. There was a few underground UK hip hop magazines I put, you know. So, you know, I could afford to do little weird adverts. I did little strange adverts in magazines. And then I think, I can't remember who I was distributed by, but yeah, Bite It kind of worked. But then towards the, like, you know, Brotherhood signed to, um, to Virgin and Lewis Parker, he threw my friendly, I was friendly with Mushroom for Massive Attack. And he loved Lewis Parker, so we got him signed to Melancholic Massive Attack's label because I knew he was so talented that I would hinder him from being successful. So I wanted him to succeed. And I had no, I, he just signed, I didn't get anything for it. He just moved on to another label because I really wanted to help him and support him. And then with, with Output, I got, because off the back of the stuff I was doing, I got a really good um, P, product P&D deal. I got an advance for that, and I think, they gave me money just to do it, and I could do what I wanted. Who was that with? It was quite, that was with, not with SRD. I can't remember who it was with at the time. I can't remember a distributor, but I ended up, yeah, I just got a, a P&D deal with them. Which makes everything a lot easier. So much easier, yeah. So, yeah, that's kind of how I Yeah, what, what was the first record, sorry, on? Uh... On Output. Yeah. Oh, I had some tracks that I think were originally maybe remixes for Mo. I had this thing called Skull, so I did some really experimental hip-hop stuff on Mo Wax in the mid-90s. And during that period, there were kind of things that maybe I started off as doing as remixes and turned into their own tracks. So I released a couple of, like, kind of experimental hip-hop things on, um, on Output. And also, that's during this period, between Bite It and Output, I made this album for Acid Jazz called The Emperor's New Clothes, which was a... They were like a weird progressive rock jazz band you'd produce that yeah and it's the first live band i ever worked with we worked on it for a year and a half <laughs> right um, acid jazz acid jazz hated it <laughs> nice. um and the record never came out <laughs> oh god really um it might come, we, i'm trying to get it out at the moment but it, well really? sort of, this is what happened well basically what happened was um we finished the record eddie pillar the guy who's now kind of like he's He's, let's say he's reimagining himself as this kind of like happy mod character, but actually he was just a, a dodgy guy and just ripped everyone off. He didn't want to pay me and he didn't want to pay the band. He said, he said I don't like the record, you're not getting any money for it. So I walked out with the masters and said, well, fuck it, you're not getting the masters. And I never heard a word. And since that, the band and myself, they just washed their hands of it because it was a super experimental record. Right. And it didn't, didn't sound anything. They wanted to put singers on it, wanted to make it more poppy, like Brand New Heavens or something. They didn't understand it. And then in the past 25, 30 years, didn't hear a word from them. Um, and I gave a track re- maybe five years ago to Giles Peets and he played it and suddenly they're like, oh, we want to put the record out. <laughs> and we've been having a fight ever since and they actually ended up putting the record out without... Uh, anyway, it's been a nightmare, but hopefully it's going to come out of... Well, 
officially somehow. But yeah, that was so on top of my manager dying, the brotherhood kicking me out of the band. And uh, what was the other thing I said? Something else bad happened at that time. Anyway, this album happened. So I had a shit time. And that's what, when I started output, some Emperor's New Clothes tracks ended up being the first release of an output. That's what happened. Right. Yeah. Let's, well, we're running a little bit short of time. And there's a couple of things I definitely want to cover. Um, so I'm going to jump to, well, I mean, actually, it's a question that occurred to me. You don't want to talk about four, you don't want to talk about four tech? Uh No. <laughs> why uh, well because i want to ask well i've got something specific i want to ask you about oh. and, and you mentioning doing weird ads is what uh, i had it written down anyway but that just yeah. just kind of uh flagged it in my head yeah so a quote a quote that i pulled out from from you previously was basically you saying that indie labels now act like majors in the in the promotion of of records and the kind of mar- sort yeah. of marketing of records and and yeah. you, I've, the the soul wax campaign you did yeah i think is is really interesting and really great and i remember it at the time thank you and thinking it was awesome at the time so what did you mean like by that expressly like the indie labels acting like majors i mean is it just the, the but that's all oh, that's enough this is you're talking about from it links back to output because i will you know Fortet did Fridge and Fortet did really well. Mm-hmm. Then I worked with LCD Sound System, The Rapture, right? I put their records out for the entire world. A lot of people people don't realize, but I basically, me and my press guy built up DFA around the world, excluding America and Japan. Mm. We pushed and promoted those records. I put them through. Output was already successful. And I put those early LCD and Rapture records through my network to make them work, right? Mm-hmm. And at that time... I had loads of other labels trying to, that were saying they were indie labels, like so City Rockers, for instance, right, who were funded by a major trying to steal the bands off me. Yep. So you had all these kind of sub that tried to give the impression they're indies, but they were all owned by majors. Yep. And that's when I, I think that, that, that comment was particularly made okay. about that period of time where I was, I was completely independent. I had the beginning of output. There was a period of time when I was actually, when I did a playgroup project where Output was coordinated by source through Virgin, but only for like a year. It didn't work out. But I was an indie label, but they were a true indie label, but there were lots of labels trying to be indie and they weren't indie. That's what I was trying to say. Okay. I actually thought that it was more to do with the marketing and promoting of records. No, not at all. No. I really? Okay. <laughs> That's no. completely wrong then. Because cause I thought the context was mm. the Soul Wax campaign being a very intentionally opaque methods yeah. of, of, of building a, a campaign and building a hype around a record in a way which is not typical of the... Nah, of the but, P, but PS, PS had a... But PS were like... No, that, honestly, that's not... That, that wasn't the gist of what I was okay, saying. Okay, okay, no, fair enough, fair enough. No, but no, I, I mean, you know, I'm happy to talk about how that campaign worked, but no, that wasn't really... No, that wasn't what I meant. Okay, we'll talk about that campaign then. Please. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm aware you're going to have to edit a lot. I've been no, no, no. I'm not, I don't edit anything. I, I, I'm okay. happy to look like a dick. In, in my no, no, you don't, no, you have, no, your questions are fucking great. You don't look like a dick at all. Um, no, the, the, the Soul Wax campaign, I think that was probably my re-entry into doing record covers again, maybe. Right. After, no, because I did output. I had output. I did all the record covers for, for all the releases on output. And then I met, at that time, I was actively DJing. And there was, a, I became part of a crew of us, which was probably Tiga, James Murphy, Too Many DJs, DJ Hell, 
a bunch of this kitten hacker. I'm trying to think who else. We always used to play together. Yeah. Right. And I met too many DJ Soulwax through that lot, I think. Mm. Or they just contact, I can't remember. Maybe I, got, I can't remember. Maybe I got them through a remix of Playgroup. I can't remember. And they're very bright, super intelligent, super like cultural magpies. They're into, they've got really great taste. Right. And I knew with them, we started, I think they asked me to do the cover and I was like, let's do something fucking wild for it. Mm. And I just convinced them and the label was like, look, you know what? Let's do these things and no one can see what they are because I can guarantee you it's going to have more impact rather than just say Soul Wax, a new single coming out now, have this optical effect that people don't see. First of all, they walk past it and they work out what something's going on. And I sold it to them and it worked. And I remember standing at Old Street Roundabout for a day photographing people that would walk past a poster and then literally walk back and stare at it for, for five minutes, right? Yeah. So that's kind of, you know, that... And it you know, wasn't incredibly expensive. It was a lot of experimentation to make it work, but it wasn't like an embossed sleeve with kind of like 15 colours. It was a black and white cover. You know, it was really simple to, to manufacture. But that was a really, you know, that, and that was really my re-entry back into doing... Um, creative direction and artwork for other artists after that long period. And just specifically for people who aren't familiar with it, basically you developed a way of uh, like text emerging from. Yeah, yeah it, it was. Yeah, it's just. An, I mean, I, 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 it's not something I developed per se because it was a technique that other people had used previously in different ways. Yeah, but it was done in a very specific kind of a way, right? Yeah, ba- basically it was a way of using. Um, lines, dots, shapes, and hiding something within those within the, the within those lines or shapes, which could basically it was just a very literally it was just if I if I made something a few micromillimeters bigger from a distance you could see it. Um, so yeah, it's just hidden text within patterns, but that process I had to do it. If you imagine you had like the album cover. I needed to do one small for Spotify, one bit. I had to do like multiple different versions for each format. It was a lot of it's printing out of experimentation. But, it, you know, it worked both digitally and physically. It was a really amazingly fun project. Yeah. For a great band and who, a band whose music I really enjoyed as well. Yeah, I mean, that was one of the few times where I've bought a record just for the cover. Ah. Thank you, mate. Uh, genuinely, and I and I hadn't. Uh, I really wasn't familiar with Zoax at all, and I was I, I was a bit underwhelmed, I have to say, by the actual oh, record. Nice. I, mean, I actually really like it now, but I remember just, like sticking it on, thinking this has got to be amazing, and being like, oh, okay. Uh, but, but I mean, like I said, I do. I, I have grown to grown to love it. I mean, they're fucking really, really great. I, I do like them a lot. Yeah, definitely. So I mean, the lot. I mean, that's kind of the last question I wanted to ask, or sort of around it anyway. Um, although I, we could go on for ages, but um, just about the importance of album art and kind of, I guess, record art, generally speaking. Yeah. Now, so I, I, um, I listened to a long inter- interview with Trent Reznor quite recently where he talked about some work. Yeah, I heard that. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, he was talking about some work that he did for Apple, trying to um, increase the kind of, I'm not sure how to put this, but like the, I guess the reintroduce the importance i suppose of artwork and packaging and stuff in a digital kind of a way yeah which i don't think he was very successful at and i'm not sure that it's possible what do you think about that generally uh and what first of all like do you think that the importance of this stuff has declined and 
then is it possible? Well, and then your general thoughts about it in the kind of digital world, I suppose. Um, I'm not a format snob, right? I like all different methods of, of, of delivering music to people. The, I, personally, okay, it's romantically quite sad that maybe not everybody holds a 12-inch picture in their hands when they listen to a piece of music. But as a problem solver, as a designer, it's my job to try to create something memorable around a project using whatever means of delivering imagery or ideas, right? Mm. So, albeit I don't do so many 12-inch sleeves, I do do more moving image stuff for people, which is equally as exciting. So I don't, I, I don't really lament. I'm not that bothered about it, really, because I think there's methods now of, of doing stuff that are, are equally as exciting, mm. you know? So I wouldn't still be doing what I did if I felt like that, because not many people do 12-inch do 12 inch records anymore. And I like to, you know, I, ultimately, I love coming up with ideas and problem-solving. So it's, if someone says to me now, you know, Trevor, we just want a, a, a 300 by 300 pack shot, but at the same time, can you do us a, a kind of a video, a, what they call a visualizer now? I'm like, yeah, that sounds good because I enjoy doing a visualizer probably more than I enjoy doing a 12-inch record sleeve. So it do, doesn't really bother me. The, I, it, you know, it's very important. That, you know, the visual representation of music is that's the backbone of my life. You know, that's what I do. And that hasn't declined at all. If anything, it's more important, you could argue, I suppose, now with um, the way things are, with the way music is sold, I suppose, if that's, uh, with, that's why we're... Without a doubt. And I, but I, I just think ultimately all the things that I've fetishized and cared so passionately about for years, they've just become more specialist, you know? And that kind of goes back to the first things we spoke about, you know, if physical packaging ends up being a very specialist market, I said, I, I, I quite like the idea of that. I don't, you know, that, that, that to me is quite a lovely thought, you know. I'd rather, you know, maybe it's quite exciting that only 500 people will own a really beautiful object than, than uh, 20,000 people owning something which is kind of average. So, I, you know, I, I, have, I have to be optimistic and positive, otherwise I wouldn't be able to carry on doing what I'm doing, you know. Yeah, totally. That makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, in fact, just as you were saying, this is not really uh, directly relevant, but as, as you were saying that, I was just reminded of the Alice Cooper packaging, which lost them all that money. Which is that the one with the knickers on it? Yeah. Or <laughs> yeah. So they lost lost money on every record sold, but it was um yeah. Anyway. Anyway, this has been great. Thanks so much for your time, man. Just let me yeah, let me ask you a quick one. Which is a, ask me as much as you want, mate. I'm happy doing this. It's fun. Okay. Well, I was just going to ask you the really annoying question of picking out a couple of your sleeves that you like the most. Uh, In fact, actually, before you answer that, pick out another couple of other per, other people's uh, sleeves. <laughs> uh, New Order Confusion, one of my favourite albums, of, um, single uh, favourite record covers of all time. Um, and what else do I love? And um, Craftwork, Computer World. Yeah. I think they're two of my favourite album covers. And then my own, uh, obviously the Soul Wax. I think the thing I did for Kieran recently, the KH thing, I'm really proud yeah, of that. Yeah, that's awesome. That last yeah. year. Thank you. And 
Oh, fuck, man, there's so many. Um, um, I really like the thing I did for James. Well, I did something for James Ford last year on Warp. And it was quite an interesting one because it's just a record he made in lockdown quite personally by himself. And that is something that someone else tried to design it. They, they weren't happy what they did. And I was like, I, he had a young son, five years old. And I just said, is, is your son paint and draw? He goes, yeah, he does. And he sent me some paintings. I was like, that's it. We're using one of your son's pictures on the cover. Nice. And I just reversed it, flipped it around, and that's the cover. And sometimes coming up, you know, it goes back to those things about those ideas and things that only take a short amount of time. That probably, that concept took me 10 minutes to come up with. But it's a really strong kind of like valid concept. And I really, you know, I was really happy doing that. So, and I've got loads of interesting things coming up as well, people I'm working with. So it's, it's good. Yeah. All good. Great. Well, yeah. Thanks for your time, man. This has been really, really fun. Thanks for the great questions, man. We didn't get to talk about Bex and Golders Green and Edgeware, but I'm happy that's that'd be quite embarrassing. <laughs> the term Beck, wow. I literally haven't heard that since school. I genuinely haven't. Did you used to wear a dinky did you used to wear a dinky belt? No. Do you know what a dink do you know what a dinky I, belt is? I don't is? know what a dinky belt is. What's a dinky belt? I just remember like uh, Pepe jeans and stuff like that. Just uh... A dinky belt was like one of those fabric belts you get in different colours with like the metal I think it's a GI it's like a, an army belt and you're it's got like a metal buckle, like an all metal flat buckle. And the whole, the belt is made of like woven cotton or something. Right. And you pull it through and you used to tuck it down and hang it down. And you just get them in different colours. And that was a dinky belt. It was an edgeware thing, maybe. For the benefit of the audience, what is a Beck or what was a Beck? Do they still exist, actually? It was like a Northwest London casual. Well, no, it was like a Northwest London kind of, it wasn't just a, a Jewish thing because it was like, it was, it, it was a subculture of people, it was kind of like my older brother. It kind of came out of jazz funk, like British jazz funk, I think. Really? It was kind of, yeah, Pepe jeans, I think, Fiorucci, kicker boots, yeah. dinky belts, but it was a bit wanky. It was kind of like everybody wanted to look like George, like Andrew Ridgely, right? Or George or George Michael. Right. Kind of wear, like having a wedge. It was quite related to casuals, but it was like a bit like um, preppy kind of Panamero kind of like fa- Italian fashion thing. Mm. But yeah, it's a fascinating subculture. I've got some, I'll have to send you, I've got some really interesting articles about Bex actually that I found. Really? That Richard, yeah, that Richard Russell wanted to have through. I think he, I maybe used them in his, in his book, but yeah, I've got some, I'll see if I can find them. I'll send them to you. But yeah, um, got, there was Gold is Green, Edgeware, I think maybe um, Gantz Hill as well. Yeah, I just remember Southgate. Yeah, the guys that hang around at McDonald's in Gold is Green, just. Uh... Edgeware Station. McDonald's Golders Green, there was a bagel place in Golders in Hendon, I think. There was a few key spots. Is it someone should do a book or a, a proper film, a documentary about it, because it is really fascinating. But I don't think it lasts it's probably a, a good ten years. I mean, it's a couple of generations, or maybe a good ten years. I yeah, think I mean I'm talking seven. about like the I guess the early nineties is when I would have been What, they had Bex in the nineties, really? Yeah, for sure. I mean I, yeah, so I would have been like aged sort of twelve, thirteen when this would have been a thing for me at school. Which was yeah, Fuck, which I was thought, like ninety one, ninety two. Wow, I thought it kind of ended in the in the eighties. It was definitely seen as Crazy. being a sort of like a, a bit of a pejorative term. <laughs> I remember it being used as, but it was definitely a thing for sure. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Mad. All right, maybe you want to you you want to do a whole podcast about it, mate. Right. Uh, okay. Maybe, I'll, but I'll send you those. I'll send you those articles. I've got them somewhere. I'll try and email. I'm pretty sure I've got them here. I can send them to you. That's some North London cultural history right there. <laughs> well, a lot of people, the thing is, you know where Mark Moore grew up? No. Gold is green. Really? 
Yeah. I can see that. Yeah. I can see the, fa- I, I see, I totally see it in the, the kind of fashion choices. Mark Moore grabbing gold with green. Edgeware, loads of people came from Edgeware. It's kind of, yeah, it's, wow. yeah, it's, it's, it's Northwest London has a lot to answer for. Yeah, right. All right. Lovely to talk to you, man. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much. Yeah, that was the kind of conversation that I really love on this podcast. No doubt you will be aware of that if you've made it this far through. And uh, just really, really interesting on so many different levels. Great to talk to someone like Trevor for a couple of hours. We have quite a lot in common. Although, as mentioned, he's uh, of a different vintage to me, slightly. But yeah, brilliant observations, brilliant stories, brilliant experiences. And yeah, just just an awesome episode. One of my favourite episodes I think we've done of the show. So yeah, 10 out of 10 from me. What about you? If you've got anything to say, then join us on the Discord, hotflushrecordings.com slash discords. I'm not going to do too much of a post-amble this week. We already mentioned the pledge drive. So if you're feeling generous, if you're feeling like you enjoyed this episode of the show, then yeah, get involved and support us directly. There are bonus benefits and they are detailed in the show notes. So have a look at those. And yeah, that would be nice of you. Okay, we're done. If you're not going to do the pleasure drive thing that's fine follow the show wherever you're listening to this podcast leave us a review or a rating and i've already mentioned the discord actually you could also follow the spotify playlist there's a link in the show notes to that too that's about it i'll see you back here same time same place next week for the next episode of the not a diamond podcast thank you Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.